This is Colonia Cast, episode 38. Today we are joined by Dr. Elliot Jacobson, who is Professor Emeritus in University of Florida's College of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Jacobson is also a diplomat of the American College for Zoological Medicine and has published over 300 different peer-reviewed papers dealing with some of his clinical findings as well as research uh, in, in the veterinary medicine field with a focus on exotic species. Uh, we're really excited to talk to him today. Uh, thanks for coming on, Dr. Jacobson. Glad to be here. All right. Uh, Wyatt, do you want to get us started with our first question? Uh um, yeah, give me like, uh, it'd probably be better if Ken did that. All right. Ken, you want right, to sure. get okay. us kicked off? All right. <laughs> so this is a um, preliminary question that we ask pretty much everyone. Uh, what first got you into turtles and tortoises? Well, they're, uh, my, my interest actually is, I mean, broader, although I have a, a, a number of turtles and tortoises, I, I've been interested in reptiles, uh, a good portion of my life. Uh, but I actually started out with an interest in entomology. And, uh, and since I, I grew up in an inner city environment in Brooklyn, New York, there weren't a lot of uh, turtles or tortoises uh, right. uh, in the wild. And so I, I was just attracted to living things uh, that were uh, around. And so my first interests were actually insects. What what type of insects were you interested in? Oh, anything. Uh, I have still the first monarch butterfly I ever collected as a as a kid. That's that's framed oh, that I caught okay. in 1952 around there. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting start. Uh, so then you decided to go on and to to uh, get get your DVM as as well as a PhD, uh, which is a lot of work, obviously, and a lot of our listeners are sort of younger and, and upcoming and sort of at the collegiate level. Um, I'm, I'm sort of curious, like in, in the process of that, A, what sort of motivated you to do that? And then what were some of the uh, the setbacks or challenges and, and how did you overcome, uh, overcome them in, in sort of that process? Well, I will say that uh, it may look like my education is linear and, and this followed this and this followed this and so on. But there were, there were a lot of choices along the way. And, um, and actually going into academics was probably the, the last thing I think I would ever consider doing when I was in, in undergraduate school. I, I really uh, had no idea of what academics was about other than going to school. And I went to a free university. I was uh, City University of New York at the time I grew up in the in the 60s was a, a free uh, undergraduate school. Uh, you had to be a, a resident of, of a borough uh, in New York City. And then each borough had its own branch of uh, what was called CUNY, the City University in New York, which had about 160,000 students. Um, it was divided up about five campuses, six campuses. Uh, so um, I really had no idea how academics worked at all, uh, other than uh, when I was finishing up my undergraduate degree, I thought about going on into uh, an entomology graduate program. Uh, but then my whole interest changed to reptiles. And, um, and so uh, I wound up going uh, to uh, 
New Mexico State University uh, for my master's and not knowing really what that was about other than I was still in school and my choice was either stay in college or go to Vietnam. And so uh, that was, that was uh, an, an aspect of this uh, that was, uh, you know, if, if you were in the 60s and you were of age of being drafted, uh, that was what uh, you'd wind up going. Right. Um, so the, those, they seem like choices, but they're not, they're not choices. There are a lot of things that uh, affected those, those choices. So they look linear, but I had to, I had to learn about what graduate school was all about. And probably, uh, the best two years I have, I spent 13 years in college. The, the two years I spent at New Mexico state university were the best, uh, because of where I lived and opportunities to go out in the field and and um and get an idea of what field research uh was about um at that time i worked with snakes uh for my masters and uh, for my phd i worked with mud puppies uh, i mean choices uh choices uh especially when you're starting out uh when you're young uh, you don't have a lot uh behind uh to uh really uh at times make the the, the best choices um and so some choices work and some don't and uh and taking a certain amount of risk uh is inevitable um and so uh i feel fortunate that the choices that i made uh, worked out uh just fine um i had two brother-in-laws that were veterinarians i knew something about veterinary medicine I knew I didn't want to work with domestic animals. <laughs> that was my one of my biggest early learning experiences. Even though we have our own dogs and cats, that wasn't really for me at all. And I knew nothing, zero, about zoological medicine, which when I was in undergraduate school as a profession didn't exist, uh, really. It was, it was a handful of zoo veterinarians around the country. And there were no... Uh, uh, postgraduate, I mean, or graduate course uh, in zoo medicine until uh, the 70s um, when I was out of school uh, already. And um, and so, uh, you know, you're, you're left with choices and you try to make the, the, the best that you can. And I wanted to integrate my hobby, which was reptiles and, and keeping reptiles uh, with a profession. And so initially, I, I, when I got out of uh, veterinary school, um, I um, looked at positions in zoos and uh, wound up taking a position as a wildlife veterinarian for the state of Maryland, uh, which was uh, an interesting two years of experience uh, before I went down, came here in Florida. Your perspective is really interesting. We haven't had, we've had a few veterinarians on in the past, but not um, sort of the research red is, is really interesting. And, and, and making a career, like you said, out of it is a challenging thing to do in, in wildlife and especially exotic species. So it's, it's, it's cool to see that that's been your pathway and, and, and to hear that it's not really a, it, it's not a smooth road. There's a lot of bumps and it's nonlinear, as you've said. Um, so maybe we can sort of transition into uh, kind of the, the more uh, topic specific stuff. Uh, the first thing I feel like is a good way to sort of kick things off is uh, with with colonial infectious diseases 
And th this is something you've done uh, a good deal of work with and in terms of research, and I'm sure you've seen it in, in when you've worked on, on, on specimens. Um, and I'm sort of curious if you could kind of broadly classify how can we think about all of the different diseases with regards to classification for, for turtles and tortoises? And, and I mean, we know about bacteria, viruses, those sort of things, but then there's the whole protozoan aspect and, and how can we make sense of all of that? Good question. Very, very difficult to answer in the uh, time constraints. Um, you know, it, it, it's, um, uh, as, as I said, I mean, turtle, I've, I've kept turtles a good part of my life and, and, and tortoises also. And I look back at uh, keeping them when I was a, a teenager, which the, the first big group of tortoises to come into the country were Greek tortoises. Uh, and uh, they were very popular in the, in, starting out in the 60s. They became popular in the, in the reptile pet trade. Uh, which had, a, you know, its infancy really was was in the six, late 50s, early 60s. Um, I know if any of you have read The Lizard King, it's, uh, it's a book yeah. that was published a number of years ago, uh, which really sums up uh, uh, much of the animal trade and the reptile trade in the, uh, in the 60s, late 50s and 60s. And I probably visited every single reptile dealer in New York City that was in that book. And so I was able to grow up in, in a pretty unique in, environment uh, uh, at, the, uh, at the time. And so um, I, I transitioned from insects to reptiles. Uh, that happened uh, probably in the, in the late 50s. Uh, as more and more pet stores opened that sold reptiles, uh, you know, prior to the late fifties, there, there was very little available, uh, in the, uh, the, the reptile pet trade, uh, at least where I, uh, where, uh, I lived. Uh, so having those pets was, was really important to me because that also influenced the choices that I made. And, uh, and as I said, uh, turtles, tortoises are, are a part of reptiles as a, as a group. And I, I look at them you know, as, a, as a somewhat singular group of, of animals, although each order is, is uh, quite different, especially when you look at crocodilians, and which are basically feeding machines. Uh, so um, uh, it, it has been interesting now to look back at uh, uh, what I was exposed to and, and um, and also the you know friends that you have uh, that uh, affect your your choices, and I knew almost no one else interested in reptiles as a kid growing up. Uh, most of my friends were afraid of them, and um, so that that was uh, you know was always uh, kind of amusing looking back at uh, trying to get friends that were seth of snakes. Uh, to give them a desensitization program, uh, which did not always work very well because I often would have snakes, oh, this never bites. And then the snake grabs my nose or something like that. And, and that's uh, the, the number of friends that, uh, that, that I had uh, that wanted to, you know, really uh, or were interested in these animals were almost, you know, non-existent. So, um, 
I was very fortunate along along the way to somehow keep on uh, keep my interest going, and then graduate school is what made the big difference. Uh, graduate school, the most important thing that I learned out of all my years in graduate school was how to critically think, uh, which uh, you use in so many different ways. But I really was not, uh, uh, I did not learn how to critically think in undergraduate school. Uh, it, it, it just, you know, wasn't, wasn't there yet. Um, and, and today, the kinds of things you all get exposed to are light years ahead of what I was to in, in, in growing up. Right. That, that's interesting. It's, what, what were some of the events that sort of led to the like the ending grad school, I guess, opened your, your mind to, to more kind of broader perspectives or, or critical thinking? Well, one thing that was really excellent was what's called Journal Club. Uh, where uh, a number of papers are are uh, uh, are copied and and uh, are available to check out uh, from a uh, there was a at New Mexico State there was a coffee there was a, a a gathering place for faculty early in the morning coffee room and and faculty would sit around the table and discuss various things research other things and then we had these papers that were put out once once a week or once every other week and we would discuss them um, and really get it into the to the science of uh, of the papers and and this eventually led into becoming reviewers for journals where you're reviewing papers a lot and get to see how other people write and how they form a discussion and so that was all a very evolving process along the way uh, that uh, I look back at, and um, actually, it's it's so interesting to see uh, how that turned out. Um, but that critical thinking of of every time you read a paper or read an article in a newspaper or sort out what is real and 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 what is not. And luckily, a lot of science is. I mean scientific papers for the most part are real and uh there are mistakes made people may may interpret things incorrectly uh, or it may take years to uh get at the the real truth of, uh, of of something but science is based on building and just adding more information on a particular topic over time and um and so there there are lots of things that go into critical thinking but that critical thinking can be applied to everyday politics that is going on in our country, uh, to uh, hard science. Um, and uh, it, it, it just makes a, a really big difference. It can be very frustrating also uh, because of misinformation that is so easy now uh, to be passed around on the web. Right. There's something to be said for access to information, but at the same time, the peer review process is something that is it, it's it's good in terms of making sure data is is in the right place. I'm working on a a paper right now looking at the effects of urbanization on western pond turtles and and red-eared sliders, how they affect them as well, and like actually 
thinking about the system and then looking at the data and trying to make sense of what you have in context of what the problem could be are, are two very different things. And it's hard, it's hard sometimes not to be subjective about it, but you have to remain as objective as possible, I, which I think is important in science. Well, I, I'd like to uh, just insert something interesting with pond turtles because we worked on a die-off of uh, Pacific pond turtles probably in the early, maybe mid-90s or early 90s, maybe, probably early 90s. But it was the last population of, uh, I think, in, uh, a, a, a population of pond turtles in, uh, in southern uh, Washington and uh, was on private land uh, uh, that, um, and there's probably about 150 to 200 turtles in this population. Uh, something like that. And then they start having a die off. And we received several here uh, to work up. And they had an interesting uh, uh, disease affecting their pulmonary system, um, which at the time, we just didn't have the tools uh, to really get at what the cause was at that time. But what was interesting is there was a red eared slider in this pond. And, uh, and the question, uh, it, I mean, is when you have a situation like that is uh, species A may carry something that doesn't kill it, but gives it to species B and it does. And so outbreaks are, uh, are really uh, take a lot of uh, detective type approach to figuring out causes and, and, and effects. And to this day, we still don't know, uh, have a handle on, on uh, the cause of that disease. And all the turtles uh, in that pond were collected and they were dispersed to several different zoos like Woodland Park Zoo, Tacoma Park Zoo. Uh, and uh, eventually they were returned uh, back to that, uh, that, that system. Um, and I don't know how that uh, population of turtles has done, you know, over, it's a long time now, it's over 30 years. And then I saw one other case in a pet, it was a, a captive uh, Pacific pond turtle that uh, a friend who was a pathologist received, and he sent me the slide, a uh, microscopic slide on it, and it looked exactly the same as his other disease in this, in this population. And we still haven't uh, determined what the, the cause of that is. And, um, and there are other pathogens that have now been reported for pond turtles. And, and uh, so when, when you're dealing with, with uh, production, what's called production medicine, where you're producing a lot of animals in a... Um, the work that I did coming at, I was, was descriptive, uh, describing uh, different types of diseases in these animals and trying to identify, uh, you know, causes. Um, and today it's light years ahead of what I had available in, uh, in academics here when I started out. Uh, you know, diagnostic pathology has, has changed by leaps and bounds uh, with sequencing and, and looking at, uh, at very, very specific pathogens and, and how they relate phylogenetically. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Right. That, over time and that you have an interesting perspective because you've seen how that's changed through the the years and decades so that that's an interesting thing one of the the pathogens that's a big deal right now is the tinc uh that that's something i think that you've worked on 
uh, a bit. Um, and maybe you could give us sort of a, we could start out with just a rundown on kind of the life cycle of, of um, that pathogen. And, and maybe you can explain to us what, what is, what is strange about it or, or what's unknown. It's, we originally described that organism in radiated tortoises uh, in, in, in the nineties and uh, working with a collection in uh south of here that uh, a woman had a large collection of mostly side neck turtles but she also had uh, tortoises and so we called it intranuclear coccidiosis and someone then added tortoise to, <laughs> to the name along the way in some paper and then it became tink which is is kind of amusing uh, about it and we i've seen it in one um, semi-aquatic turtle uh, also so it's not purely tortoises, but it's uh, certainly, uh, they're much more susceptible uh, than from what we've seen with uh, with aqu aquatic turtles. And so you had done some of the initial work, uh, I'm assuming using electron uh, microscopy to look at actually how the organism was intranuclear and, and sort of characterizing its morphology. Uh, and, and infectivity. What, can you sort of expand upon that? How did you analyze that? And, and what made you think it was it or what what makes you what leads you to think that it's intranuclear? And, and why would that be necessary for the coccidia? Well, it's a unique group of coccidia that uh, are uh, they replicate in the in the nucleus. And uh, and so there, there's a sizable, I mean, sizable group of uh, other intranuclear coccidia. Uh, there's some. Uh, there's a, at least one paper looking at uh, reporting on intranuclear coccidiosis in wild liz in liz free ranging lizards. I think in Louisiana. Uh, so we we know that uh, there's a, an a, an organism within that you know within the coccidia group. Uh, that uh, uh, replicates within the, the the nucleus, and we could see that uh, by on electron microscopy. Uh, we could, uh, uh, and we were able to pinpoint uh, the uh, the lesions to look at. Uh, for instance, and in starting out, a lot of the work that I did initially was uh, was histology, was histopathology. Uh, looking at what the, the the lesion or if there's a disease or lesion or agent what it's like uh, under the light microscope. And so taking samples then to an electron microscope uh, really uh, cause, a, I mean, you have to have a lot of focus on a very small area of, of the sample to look at. Because electron microscopy, you're looking at maybe 200 cells say, and, and what's called is a, a thin section, an ultra thin section. And so when you're looking at 200 cells, you, and you're looking for something very specifically within that group you know, uh, uh, of cells, you, you have to be able to focus into an area of, of the tissue uh, that's gonna yield uh, the information that, that you need. So it's a very, I mean, there's a lot of work that goes into uh, selecting a sample for electron microscopy. We're in that sample to look at how to handle it. Um, it, it, it it's, it's very time consuming. It's very labor intensive, say compared uh, to uh, looking at uh, genomic sequencing. Uh, today, it, it, it's, uh, it's quicker. 
to, to get sequencing done uh, than maybe getting a really good electron microscopic uh, analysis of the sample done. So it's tedious work, it's, it's, it's labor intensive. And, um, and then in the end, you're, you have a picture uh, of the supposed you know, pathogen that you're looking for. And that, and that picture gives you a lot of information on the morphology and, and the size and, and how the organism replicates and so on. There are a lot of different features of the biology of that organism uh, that you use as a diagnostician uh, to try and, and diagnose what you have. Uh, but uh, when I was initially, I mean, doing this work in the early 90s, PCR was uh, was still on the on the horizon. It wasn't yet to really unfold uh, until later in the in the in the, uh, in, the 19, in the 90s. And uh, and the things that you can do today are light years ahead of what I was able to do in the 80s when I spent a lot of my time here at the University of Florida uh, searching for pathogens in these animals. Uh, so I became interested in, 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 the, in the search for pathogens. And, um, and then you learn along the way, in order to do research, you need money, uh, you need grants, and so on. And then how to integrate that into what you're doing, and how to get money, and, uh, and how to put together a really good proposal uh, for funding. And, and the whole history of funding has changed also over this period of time that, that I have been working with uh, reptile disease, uh, there was very little funding uh, when I first started. And there's more funding today than probably ever before, uh, but it's still very, very competitive uh, to be able to get uh, money uh, to work on, uh, on these big projects. That that's interesting to hear that. Uh, one one of the thing too about the 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 TINC, uh, there's some speculation it may form paradizoids where it becomes dormant in the in the cell. Is that something that you think happens or? It's, what, it's what quite po it's quite possible. The, the person I haven't spoke to, uh, Mike Garner, is a pathologist that uh, I've I've worked. He was a a resident in pathology here at the University of Florida in the early '90s. And he went on to form a company, Zoopath, in uh, near Seattle. And um, he, he has looked at a lot of, of samples. And, and this came up in the discussion. I don't know if they have now case material to, to show that. Uh, on the cases I worked on, uh, I, I didn't pick that up. But it is certainly a possibility, or someone may have, uh, have already identified that stage, and it hasn't been reported yet. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, certainly a possibility. Some people believe that, that you never completely eliminate the infection, uh, because of those, um, zoites and, uh, that may be in, 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 in these animals. And then what triggers them? Can they be triggered to go from an inactive to an active infection, which we see, uh, in certain viruses like herpes, uh, herpes is pretty notorious for, uh, certain herpes going to the brain and then just uh, hanging out in the brain for some period of time until they get triggered to replicate again, uh, like with herpes simplex in, 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 in humans. And uh, so, uh, 
a lot still to be learned about the uh, the uh, intranuclear coccidiosis agent. Uh, there's a group in, well, let me back up and say that we had parasitologists helping us when we started working on this in the 90s, trying to identify stages of, of replication that you could pick up in, in, in fecal samples. And we're never, I mean, our parasitologist, who was an excellent reptile parasitologist, Ellis Greiner, who's now retired, uh, looked at a lot of fecal samples from radiated tortoises uh, in a collection where there was an outbreak and couldn't, and I, I think he only had one case. He was able to identify a coccidian uh, in a fecal sample of a radiated tortoise and then lost uh, that, he wasn't able to, to keep that going. Um, and that, that material was eventually used up and, and uh, not available for use anymore. Uh, so it, it's, not, it's an organism that's not shed for whatever reason. I'm not sure if it's not being shed or we don't know how to pick it up properly. But there's a group in Germany that did, and they were able to get some sequencing data on it. Uh, that the, the Tink organism has not been named, officially named. Uh, because of the way parasitology is, um, as a discipline, uh, the the morphology of the organism is very very important uh, mm -hmm. to uh, for describing a new species of of, uh, of coccidia or protozoan parasites. Uh, but that morphology for publishing in in parasitology journals is extremely important. And up to this group in Germany, no, no one had a good handle on, on the development of, uh, of this organism uh, in these animals. Uh, but they still have not named it. So I, I don't know what's, what's going on with the naming, uh, why it's gotten uh, uh, so problematic uh, that it's still, we refer to it as, you know, tink. And then probably are multiple variants uh, within that group because we, we had looked at some uh, cases that look, you know, using electron microscopy looked like they were different. They were not uniformly the same. So we, you know, felt that there could be a number of different variants of this organism uh, in these uh, in these animals, and uh, and the therapy is uh, is problematic. Uh, there's a, a good a review of, uh, in, uh, I think, uh, ARAV, um, uh, that is a, uh, uh, a roundtable discussion on intranuclear coccidiosis. I think it's, it's, it's out or came out a couple of months ago. But that has good information on the, probably the latest on treatment as, as discussed in that roundtable uh, uh, article. Yeah, that's a, a great resource. Um, something about it that's kind of interesting, too, is it seems like I, I'd like to hear your experience on this, but certain species seem more susceptible to uh, becoming uh, ill from from the, the pathogen. Why, why do you think that is? Why do certain species have different physiological responses? Oh, that's a it's a it's a very good question, but also one that takes. I mean, there's so much uh, different ways to to discuss it. To make it simple, uh, difference in receptors, uh, in where uh, the organism has to ha has to attach the cells, and uh, and and those proteins 
uh, on the surface of cells. Uh, they probably vary within a population and between populations. Uh, we see with all kinds of pathogens that some animals may be really good carriers and uh, but do not break with disease per se. Uh, but they can carry the organism and shed the organism, and we see it in all types of animals uh, for, uh, across the, the you know, vertebrates uh, spectrum. And that's why also mixed exhibits can be problematic, uh, depending upon uh, how mixed the exhibit is and whether you're bringing something in to that that uh, is what we call subclinical. The animal's not showing any clinical disease, but is capable of shedding the organism to other species that are very susceptible. Um, but uh, you, you look at um, one aspect of it is surface proteins, but then there's how you know the cellular response. We, we you know broadly speaking, we have T cells and, and B cells and T cells and all the you know various killer cells with um, you know various uh, you know chemical you know, protein chemicals that they're producing that uh, maybe fend off infections and, uh, and another species doesn't have that. And uh, so uh, th those are, I mean, very basic things. So what makes one animal susceptible and another animal not so, um, you know, we've seen that with HIV, with human uh, immunodeficiency virus. Uh, some people carry the virus and never break with a small part of the population never break with clinical disease. Um, and so there's a lot of work that has been done with that uh, with certain pathogens, but not not that I know of with uh, with the, the intranuclear coccidiosis in, uh, in, in colonians. You just don't have one the, the, the money to pursue it. Uh, there's probably good some good data like with Mike Garner and his archive material, he has one of the best archival, um, you know, collections probably in the in the country or world, and you can get at some of those questions through his collection. Uh, but uh, for instance, with TINC, the some of the tortoises that are considered more problematic: Indian star tortoise, Sri Lankan stars, uh, radiated tortoises, uh, are up there on the list. But uh, then you have to look at how many of these animals are there in captivity and, and how they're handled and, and, uh, uh, and transferred about. And moving animals from one collection to another, just, you know, without a quarantine, quarantine is really essential. And the same with, you know, TINC, uh, that, that quarantine, when you're moving new animals into a collection, especially you have a very valuable collection, you reach a point at which any additional animal added to that collection poses a, a, a risk that it's, and, and where to make that cutoff at, at, how long do you keep adding animals to a collection is, is uh, something that has not been really uh, looked at and discussed that, uh, that well, when, when to stop adding and, and without you know, adding on a whole new building and, and a whole new quarantine program. Uh, it's just so easy to transfer things around. Yeah, there, there's a spatial aspect to that, and then there's sort of the epidemiological aspect to it as well. Like quantifying that would be interesting. Um, you've also worked on, in terms of treatment at TINC, the pharmacokinetics of panazeril, the drug. Uh, maybe you could just explain kind of what 
that the the discipline of pharmacokinetics is and sort of how you analyze how efficient a drug is in the system and how long it's in there and when what sort of you're doing there when you when you analyze that question well that's also a good question uh, that could take uh, a long time to 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 really to have a, a really good dis, uh, discussion uh, on it but basically uh, uh, pharmacokinetics I mean two aspects major aspects of pharmacology uh, pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics and, and so the, uh, the, the 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 kinetics has to do with with uh, uptake uptake distribution elimination of a drug so uh, and we've we've done qu uh, quite a few studies uh, on on different uh, animals to look at uh, certain certain drugs but it's it's very spotty uh, the, the way that um, uh, we've been able to approach this field because the money again the, the money to the amount of money it takes to do a pharmacokinetic study um, easily ten to twenty thousand dollars at uh, least say, right? yeah 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 at, at, you know per per drug and that's with a lot of other things being paid for for instance with panagel uh, we uh, worked on that drug uh, because it's um, it, it's a, it's a coccidium. Well, I, I, I'm not sure how well it's. A, a, there are drugs that are called they're, they're static drugs, which slow down or pretty much uh, the the replication of uh, of the organism. And then there are sidal drugs, so uh, which kill the organism uh, itself. And so trying to work out what drug to use and at what dose um, is, is a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of work. And so Panagerol was uh, one drug that uh, became available. Looking at, uh, well, in, in terms of the, the number of, uh, of pharmacokinetic, Again, pharmacokinetics re re refers to the uptake, distribution, and elimination of a drug, and um, and and dynamics refers to how that drug operates. on On what molecular level does it operate? You know, and and um, so you you would have to pick a dr a drug that at least uh, in the in the literature reaches blood levels in that particular organ where the parasite is found. And so with the brain, it's, it's the, there's a blood brain barrier that, uh, that prevents certain drugs from getting into the central nervous system, whereas other drugs can. Which drugs do we have the most information on? And so if you look at the literature uh, for reptiles, colonians in, included, uh, you, can, you can see the certain if we look at uh, uh, these drug studies uh, over time in reptiles, uh, we have to trace back again money. Uh, where's the money coming to to uh, to do that work? Um, and as I mentioned, I had a graduate student work on enterofloxacin using the green iguana as a model, and how these uh, uh, dosages can vary with size and age. And uh, she did a really really good good job on it but it, it it also shows the complexity of uh working in this uh in this field uh coming up with uh 
a proper dose for an animal. You, you're studying an animal that weighs 10 kilos and you're trying to uh, use it in an animal weighing several hundred kilos. And, and, and those doses vary with the, what's called the metabolic size of the animal. Uh, and, and reptiles operate at about a third of the metabolic cost of a mammal of comparable size. So drug dynamics, not so much the dynamics, but the kinetics can really, really change uh, a, a lot uh, between different species of, uh, of reptiles. Yeah, it looked like in the, the Panasral, the paper that you wrote, there wasn't much correlation between a lot of things. It was almost like the dose rate was sort of independent. The, the amount of the drug that was sort of in the blood was not really correlated with dose rate. And it, it seemed like it, there was a lot of individual specific variation. It was, that, but what, what was important about that was showing that going from 50 milligrams to 100 milligrams per kilo uh, resulted in blood levels that were detectable uh, at at a hundred that were not at fifty. Uh, so we we had a I think a fairly good I mean interpretation that uh, uh, that that a hundred was going to be more effective and and there are clinical uh, cases where p people uh, have used hundred milligrams per kilo and have been able to clear at least. The way that they were collecting samples were able to to clear infection, uh, but that then that question of bradyzoites will remain for uh, probably for quite quite a while whether these drugs are efficacious or not. But I feel that we at least uh, came up with um, a, a dose uh, that was that was producing blood levels. And, and, and without that, then you, if you're not producing any blood levels, you're not going to be affecting these animals uh, or the uh, parasites uh, uh, at all uh, that are deep in tissues. Right. That, that, okay. That, that makes sense. And that, so when you're dealing with sort of just in, in, in broad terms, antibiotics, antimicrobials, and trying to figure out proper dose rate across the board, you can do pharmacokinetic studies like that. But then there's also some level of you can do metabolic scaling and figure out kind of the relationship between metabolism and mass. Uh, but there's some potential pitfalls to that. Maybe you can speak on that a bit. Like how, how do we determine proper dosages? You, you wing it. Uh, you, you, you do the, the, the best you can with uh, the resources uh, that you have and, uh, and understanding what the limitations are. Uh, especially if you're dealing with drugs with toxicities, uh, that there are dose-dependent toxicities. Uh, you know, for, for instance, uh, one drug that is uh, very popular to use in reptiles for um, uh, microbial infections is ceftazidim, uh, which is a cephalosporin that's been around since the 80s, uh, the mid-80s, uh, when uh, studies were done to determine blood levels and and uh, and it's, and at least in the in the species of snakes that we used, uh, what was really good about this drug, it lasted for about three days, and so dosing was every seventy-two uh, hours. Um, however, if you're working with uh, potentially dangerous animals such as venomous snakes, you can boost up the uh, the the drug dose initially, 
uh, you know, not having the, the the exact data. I'm making inferences from uh, from data that we have uh, uh, collected uh, that uh, this drug is appears to be very safe. I've never seen any toxicities in a reptile from it. I've had some reptiles on ceftazidim for six months. And so I have somewhat arbitrarily doubled or tripled doses uh, if I don't want to handle the animal as much. For instance, if, uh, if, if 20 milligrams per kilogram results in blood levels that will persist for 72 hours and I increase it to 40 or 60, then I can probably get by once a week uh, for uh, administering the drug in an animal that we call is fractious, that is not easy to work with. Um, however, if you work with a drug like amikacin or genomycin, which are in a completely different class of drugs that, that are called aminoglycosides, uh, these drugs potentially are toxic to the kidney at high doses. Uh, and so you need to know uh, the, uh, the, the kinetics and then also the, uh, you know, the, the toxicities uh, that are inherent uh, with uh, some of these drugs and trying to pick a drug that has that is low on the toxicity scale, such as ceftazidim, which again, from my estimation is low, but it doesn't work against everything out there, every microbe that these animals potentially can get. And certainly not gonna work against fungal infections, which require a whole another group of, of drugs uh, that the animals need to be dosed with. Yeah, the fungal infections as a whole sort of that's a different class of 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 uh, of, of issues. That's something else that, that you've done some more. The, the fusarium was something that seems like it's sort of a big deal with giant tortoises. Uh, curious. Well, those you have to back up and say the diagnostics at the time were not the best when these papers came out. Uh, and we've experienced that even more recently. I had a there was an outbreak of a fungal disease and and pygmy and wild pygmy rattlesnakes that were being studied uh, by uh, uh, several researchers at, at Stetson uh, University in, in Central Florida, and uh, and the, the there was an outbreak of this fungal disease in these pygmy rattlesnakes and it was a very wet season. These animals had they didn't have good basking areas, which are really essential uh, for most of these uh, snakes and then turtles also. Uh, that, uh, that 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 bask because that affects their immune system, their uh, basking and their body uh, uh, temperature. And so I had a graduate student work on this outbreak uh, in these pygmy rattlesnakes and worked under a classical mycologist who many of those people were in botany uh, or agriculture because there are a lot of uh, fungi that affect uh, 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 like tomatoes and plants. Uh, in the food industry. And uh, so the classical um, mycologists were often working with plants. And, um, and this is prior to having sequencing, the ability to sequence uh, these organisms. So I think there's a lot of misidentifications in, in these fungi that have been reported in the literature uh, prior to uh, uh, you know, genomic sequencing. A lot, a lot of people think, too, I think that fungi, fungi are, are sort of localized to external areas, but it's possible for them to infect other sort of organs. And, and have you seen that in, in 
sort of different places? Yeah, we see that in, on, in various animals. Uh, humans, we generally refer to, uh, you know, uh, skin uh, uh, or ep epidermal mycoses, uh, cutaneous, my you know, cutaneous mycoses, referring to skin mycotic infections versus the deep, what are called the deep mycoses, uh, which in humans are those uh, fungi that uh, uh, get into internal organs, liver, kidney, um, and, uh, and, and so on. Um, also uh, pulmonary diseases, which uh, in certain species, like in, in, in colonians, uh, pulmonary mycosis, uh, probably more uh, prevalent or more descriptions uh, in turtles and, and tortoises compared to snakes for whatever you know reason uh, there are, are are differences in in sight of infection uh, when you go between different group tiles um, which which is is, is is quite interesting but then you have to look at the husbandry of these animals how these animals were kept for instance the big tortoises and zoos back in the say 50s or 60s, were just not kept properly. They were they were allowed to cool down too much in the winter, and it makes them very susceptible to fungal pulmonary diseases, uh, not being housed properly. So there's quite a bit of husbandry that that goes into it. But there's a lot of misidentification. Uh, to, you know, sequencing is is become all important in really identifying this organism. So, for instance. Uh, this organism that we now recognize in snakes, Ophidiomyces, uh, prior to, say, 10 years ago, that genus didn't exist uh, because we didn't have the tools uh, to, uh, to properly identify um, on a specific level uh, what these, uh, you know, these fungi really, uh, what, what group they uh, belong to. So uh, lots of misidentification. Uh, but also, we're limited by the number of drugs that are safe. Uh, we have a fewer repertoire of, of, of safe drugs with fungal infections uh, than we do, say, for microbial infections. Uh, so uh, dealing with fungal infections in these animals' outbreaks is, is, is very challenging. In, in terms of the external mycoses, that, that's something turtles specifically get quite frequently and for shell infections and such. And I'm curious what the most effective treatment that you found for, for dealing with those is. Well, I'm not the one to ask on that because I haven't worked with, uh, you know, with, with uh, therapeutics and uh, with uh, fungal infections uh, in terms of, of setting up and, and doing uh the, the proper kinetic and, and uh, dosing uh, studies. Uh, the, there's quite a bit in the literature scattered uh, about. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, there, are there, there are people who are, who are better in that field than, uh, than I am. And when we look at this area of, of medicine overall, we talk about reptile medicine. It's it's just such a broad field, and within that field, there are areas. Of, I mean, there there are multiple areas of specialization, and so with the the fungal diseases, um, 
what I, I, I mean, I have used drug dosages that others have, uh, have come up with uh, from, from the literature, but I don't have a lot of, uh, of experience uh, other than we worked on an outbreak of uh, a fungal skin disease in, in a very big uh, breeding group of leopard geckos. And, um, and, 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 we, and, and what becomes really problematical when you work with these uh, large groups of animals um, is just being able to dose them effectively, of getting the drug in them, of how to get the drug in them and getting a drug in them uh, that has, uh, uh, that is safe. Um, a lot more work has been done with amphibians, um, and fungal skin disease, uh, because of the chytrids, uh, which is good evidence of worldwide decline of amphibians, of certain amphibians from chytrid infections. We don't know of anything quite like that with fungi in reptiles, uh, it's possible this, there's an organism called endomyces uh, that's in, in, uh, in turtles, and uh, it basically punches out areas of their shell of uh, the dermal plates. You have these big um, areas of, uh, that uh, the, the bone gets lice. And uh, so there's been some work uh, that, that I, I'm pretty sure it's ongoing now uh, coming up with uh, the, the best uh, treatment regimen uh, for these uh, uh, for for these animals, uh, we've seen it here in Florida, but it's very it's very sporadic. Um, I think the the facilities, uh, such as there's one uh, that was I think breeding alligator snapping turtles, maybe in Oklahoma, Midwest somewhere in the Midwest. Yeah. And they had, they had uh, quite a few uh, uh, cases coming out of that, uh, that, I think that breeding operation. Uh, so, you know, you, 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 when, when you're working with captive animals, again, under these confined, you know, conditions, um, it becomes very, very challenging. If you have to treat 200 turtles, how do you do that? How do you effectively do it? And, um, and I'll give you an example, a fungal disease that we did work on uh, in sea turtles many years ago uh, was a pulmonary fungal disease. And I'm not sure exactly what the, the, the main now, given what, you know, the sequencing right. that is needed, what we were accurate and what we were diagnosing. But these, these sea turtles were anyway responsive to elevated uh, uh, water temperatures. Uh, that that became a key uh, in uh, feature in the outbreak. With uh, but I have not uh, done any uh, any kinetic studies and in uh, in reptiles. And there's there's a, a scattering of those uh, uh, about. Uh, so uh, and then trying to uh, apply information from one species to another species uh, is not uh, straightforward. Uh, there, there's so much variation uh, in that. So uh, a big thing with uh, with with outbreaks, um, there is a, a, a density dependent uh, feature of uh, of outbreaks uh, that you need a certain number of animals in a population to be able to you know tr transmit uh, the organism from animal to animal. Um, and so if you're working with a, uh, an owner, uh, of you know, the pet turtle, uh, with a singular problem, 
and they have the, you know the, the money uh, to to pay for treatment. For instance, we had a Galapagos tortoise with a deep fungal infection uh, in um, uh, in a joint space, uh, which we've seen several large tortoises uh, with uh, really severe septic arthritis uh, in uh, in limbs, and um, and that tortoise. Eventually, I mean, it was on, it may, I, I'd have to get the medical record, but it was one of the antimycotic uh, agents like fluconazole or itraconazole. And it was on, and the, the, the bill by the end of the year was $30,000 or something like that for a, this is an adult uh, female uh, Galapagos tortoise. Uh, but the owner was very wealthy. And money was not uh, the issue. Uh, the issue was getting this animal better. And so it really, uh, a, a lot of this type of work depends upon what a client, you know, what is affordable uh, to, uh, to a client. And do you have one animal versus a hundred? I mean, how do you, you know, I'm, I'm asking, I'm saying this somewhat re uh, rhetorically, is how do you how do you deal with a hundred animals or a thousand animals? I've had uh, you know people I know that in one room have a thousand corn snakes uh, in uh, uh, in plastic uh, shoe boxes going from floor to ceiling, and when you have an outbreak in in that situation versus having an just one animal, very very different on how you're going to be able to approach it. And um, and there's a, a, a lot of experience that that goes into how how to best to, to manage an outbreak in a, in a large collection of animals, or how do you manage an outbreak in a wild population? And I'm saying this again rhetorically because these are these are questions that uh, that, that there is no just one answer uh, to. It, it, it depends upon the animal you're working with, and it depends upon uh, the the populations. Uh, it is in, and it depends upon all the various environmental uh, parameters that, that are affecting the, this animal's overall health, uh, and, uh, and 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 that becomes a, a big issue, especially dealing with uh, wildlife. Uh, you know, for instance, you have desert tortoises in certain areas of the Southwest, which may only get rain a couple of times a year. And they've developed uh, certain physiological attributes that allow them to survive in that kind of situation. But but those situations compromise the overall health of these animals and make them more susceptible to other things that they may be naturally resistant to. So there's a lot of interplay that goes on uh, here between different pathogens and 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 uh, the basic overall husbandry of. Uh, of a collection, and with fungal infections, you learn that typically treatment is is, is longer term than with most of the uh, bacterial infections that uh, that we encounter. That that's interesting. It's sort of a yeah. It's a very complex thing, and we we talked to uh, Dr. Pete Copeless on one of the previous. Uh, podcast yeah, and, yeah and, and i know him fairly well yeah. yeah he was he he said a lot about just how 
sort of exotic species as a discipline is sort of an unfair label because you're dealing with so many individual unique species that they all have kind of their own treatment regimes and own their right. own physiology right. and ecology that make them all unique. So that that's something that's uh, and, and it makes it challenging from a research perspective, right? Because you can only focus on so many things and 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 figuring out how to treat things effectively is going to be almost impossible to fully understand for everything. So you and, and a big a big thing is judging the overall health of the animal. Of uh, when you do pick a certain therapy, of how 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 to determine whether it's efficacious or not, and and that's where a lot of experience comes in. Also, of uh, how much time do you allow uh, to uh, to occur before you have a you know choose a different approach, and you know moving animals from one drug to another is not necessarily in the it may be I mean, good for the overall health of the animal. Uh, you start flipping around different drugs that have different effects on different components of, of the of, of the animal's uh, overall health uh, is something uh, that occurs. Most of the time, it occurs in the background. Most of the people don't really can't can't evaluate uh, how these animals are actually, you know improving other than your clinical experience right yeah that that's uh yeah sort of how 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 does the treatment how is that affecting sort of some it potentially having negative effects on the animal that, o over time too that you have to weigh that into consideration well it is and then as we i talked about previously is what's safe of, of taking drugs that that uh, are both safe and effective, and that's that's the balancing act. Right. I, yeah, I think that's a good overview, and and sort of highlights a lot of the the challenges that that you deal with, sort of as an exotic veterinarian. And maybe we can jump back, sort of, maybe quickly to uh, the uh, protozoans. The and and I'm I'm sort of curious. Something that we didn't mentioned uh previously but that, that's interesting to me is there are a lot of different protozoal uh coccidia or sl different groupings of organisms um like cryptosporidium is an is one of those and uh caryosporas is another thing and and these things all are when you see those infections in turtles and tortoises are you seeing different clinical signs of infection uh or are are all of these protozoal at sort of a large scope and, and within the classifications within that, do they have pretty nonspecific symptoms? Uh, a combination uh, of, uh, of things. Uh, you know, for, for instance, with uh, cryptosporidium in, in, uh, in aquatic uh, in aquatic or in, in, uh, in tortoises, uh, that there's this uh, uh, People have associated this very soft shell, you know, problem uh, in animals with uh, in, in tortoises with with crypto, and I've I've just experienced that uh, uh, once in a Sri Lankan uh, neonate that that I got that uh, uh, eating great, doing great. Actually, I mean, we we did uh, then uh, ultimately. Got diagnosed with uh, cryptosporidium, and and there are multiple species of crypto, and they and the, the list keeps 
growing in terms of new species as sequencing data is, is uh, you know gets uh, gets brought into 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 the the identification process. Um, and so there are lots of different species of uh, of Cryptosporidium, and um, this particular little neonate tortoise uh, had a very severe infection, duodenum, and um, and and then its shell it was a great feeder and it was on a good diet that other tortoise and luckily quarantined. Uh, and I generally quarantine. I mean, quarantine to me is essential. Uh, and uh, and the longer you can quarantine. You know, up to a certain point, but the longer the better. Uh, most uh, still, I think a, a lot of people with collections uh, really don't uh, adequately quarantine. Uh, and so that can make a big difference. And I generally quarantine my animals for about six months um, and, and, um, and do my best to, you know, to keep any kind of transmission down to as as uh, as low as uh, as possible. So with, with tortoise, I've had tortoises that have been uh, tissue sent to me on tortoises with with very severe infections, and they may even for a tortoise have a really you know diarrhea, very very loose stool. That's not you know typical for for it should be for a you know healthy tortoise. And uh, you know, and, and so um, they may show clinical signs, but they're they're generally not that uh, specific. Uh, although this soft shell, uh, you know, uh, condition uh, has been associated with with uh, that, that. Certainly, if you had a baby tortoise with that's eating well, great diet, you know, uh, another tortoise. In the group that's that's eating that diet has a very firm, hard shell, is in, in considered good condition. And then you have this other one that just has a real spongy. You can just you know almost get your two fingers together when you, you have a, a thumb on the carapace and an index finger on the plastron. You can just squeeze in, and and the animal has uh, essentially no calcium being deposited uh, into the dermal plates. Uh, so that seems to be a clinical sign associated with cryptosporidium in those animals that have uh, the clinical disease. But there are others that uh, the or organism has been identified, uh, but are not necessarily showing, you know, signs of of uh, uh, of illness. Uh, from my own experience, I have I breed transpecos rat snakes. And I have some, I, I don't have a lot of snakes with color morphs, but in the Transpagos rat snakes, I have a few uh, that uh, are, you know, silver, albino, or so on. And, and, and some of these color morphs may be associated with a, an immune system that's not, not the best. But I had this one baby hatch from a Transpagos rat snake, hatch from a clutch of, say, 12 egg. One within two weeks started stomach started swelling which is a, a sign commonly seen in snakes with crypto they'll get a very enlarged firm stomach and it's it, the snakes uh, stomachs is started uh, th that area of the body started enlarging and I just euthanized it and it turned out it had a really severe infection with cryptosporidium I went back to the parents and tested them and tested other clutch mates and I could not figure out where that came from. 
I just, uh, and I don't have a huge, I have 150 animals. It's not a huge collection. And I could not identify. So something in my collection is carrying it at some low level that I could not measure. But this one uh, snake, and it was an albino versus a silver, a, uh, it's, uh, a, a, a blonde silver transpecos cross, which probably they neither one has a great immune system. And so, you know, by inbreeding, you can really cause genetic problems in your animals and you can affect their susceptibility to different bugs. Uh, so, you know, you look at the ball pythons and you look at corn snakes and how inbred they are. Uh, and it's actually amazing. They, they don't have even more problems than they do. Uh, the first cases of cryptosporidium as a pathogen in reptiles was in a very inbred collection of corn snakes at the Baltimore uh, Zoo and at the, the National Zoo in Washington in the mid-70s. And that's the first paper that was published, I think, on crypto and the pathology of cryptosporidium in a reptile in, uh, in corn snakes. The excellent paper uh, by Brownstein and, and, and others. Um, and since that time, you know, we've seen crypto in most reptiles, except uh, crocodilians. There, I don't think there's much in the way of literature at all. I think there's one case, maybe. Uh, maybe there's something more recently. Uh, but uh, when we were doing the second edition of our book on on infectious diseases and pathology of uh, of reptiles, I think that was the only report. Uh, I could find there, there may be something in the last two years, but it's uncommon in crocodilians. What the something you mentioned about the morphs being more susceptible to different uh, pathogens? It's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's my that's my guess uh, based on my my experience. I don't think there are any studies to show uh, the immune response in in different color morphs. Of you know whether ball pythons or core snakes or transpecos rat snakes, uh, we see. Um, I, I, I I'm not sure uh, how comparable say colonians are uh, in terms of uh, inbreeding effects. Um, you, you don't see that selection for color uh, or pattern as much. Um, I have a nephew that uh, breeds and and sells radiated tortoises, and there they select for s certain categories of color that make an animal cell more than another animal that doesn't have that particular color. Uh, but overall, in colonians, we don't see that as much as say in snakes. I think there's far more inbreeding that's going on probably with uh, with snakes. It's something like that. You, could you potentially make the case for that that morphs are driving the evolution of some of these pathogens in a potentially in a negative way? Oh, probably, you know, probably, probably so. I mean, a big, very big thing in the in evolution of any group of animals uh, is resistance to an, an infectious agents. Uh, that that's a driving force in evolution. Uh, it's a game of chess, and there are many papers published on that, and in, in the human literature of uh, how uh, uh, 
those immune effects uh, and how they, they respond to, uh, uh, to different potential uh, pathogens. And, um, and so if we look at, but I'm still impressed with how certain species like corn snakes, how they keep on churning out these new color morphs that drive the market. And, and ball pythons, even even more so, because they, they sell for somewhat more money. Uh, how that really drives, I mean, it, 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 it's, a, it's a pyramid of most of these animal, uh, you know, breeding operations are, are based on these, these pyramids. If you're on the top and the pinnacle coming up with a new morph, you're going, that, that is in demand then you're going to make quite a bit of money. And as it, as it becomes more and more popular, you can see the prices coming down uh, as, as more and more people breed that particular color or, you know, a variant. Um, and so that whole market of the driving forces in those markets is, uh, I've only paid attention to from somewhat of a distance because I, I mean, I, uh, I sell at the, at the Daytona Expo, uh, which uh, is the first of the expos that uh, that that developed, and, uh, and I breed animals to to sell. And I'm very selective on who I sell to. Uh, I can afford to do that because I'm not doing this as as a real business, but more of right. a, as a, as a hobby, quote business hobby. Um, and uh, so I think there's there, I mean, certain species you can get away, I use that term, get away with inbreeding, um, and others not so. For instance, I have, I uh, breed uh, indigos, I mean, Texas indigos, not Florida, not the eastern indigo, but Texas indigos and crebos and have a sizable breeding group of, uh, of, uh, of, of those animals. And, and I know what they sell. I mean, I know the market on them and, and, uh, uh, but they, there are some of them like Texas indigos are very inbred, uh, and you can't follow them back, uh, more than maybe two or three generations at the most, uh, that you just, I tried getting at that information. Uh, and there are only, uh, probably uh, a few lines of Texas indigos that, uh, uh, that, that are in the, in the pet, pet trade. Uh, and I've seen stunting even in my small little, group uh, animals that I've raised up that are somewhat stunted and it's probably uh, an, an inbreeding effect. Interesting. Yeah. That's something I, I do some like conservation work and in, in the conservation genetics, the that's kind of a, a hot topic in, in terms of just understanding the dynamics of inbreeding and, and what that does. But from a, a medical perspective, it's interesting to think about the downstream effects that, that inbreeding can have and that, that, it can impact a lot of different things in terms of immunity uh, to different pathogens in different ways. And, and, and not just that, for instance, uh, I, I have like an anesthesia and uh, of, uh, like when I work on, on my snakes and I, I still have access, even though I'm retired for 11 years, I have access to our clinics and I go in, especially if I have problems of my own uh, with uh, my own animals. And the, uh, the service that, I mean, I was service chief for zoological medicine for uh, off and on for a number of years. And, uh, and things uh, certainly have changed over the last 11 uh, that I retired. But there, for instance, in, in just routine anesthesia, uh, I still fall back on old ways of doing things. 
primarily uh, because uh, I've been, uh, you know, certain uh, anesthetics uh, approaches to anesthesia and 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 reptiles. I do things somewhat differently uh, than what uh, the service that I used to head does uh, today. Uh, for instance, like pre-meds, giving drugs that uh, that deal with pain and inflammation and so on uh, prior to be, being put on a gas anesthetic. Um, I've lost uh, a few of my colomorphs uh, to, um, uh, that I attribute to drug combinations that may work fine in a wild type, uh, but not necessarily in some of these morphs. And so I tend not, I try to keep the number of drugs I put into an animal to a minimum uh, as, as, as much as, uh, as practical uh, to do. So for instance, with snakes, snakes are very easy to anesthetize, even venomous snakes. Uh, they can either put in a chamber or you can intubate a harmless snake. You can intubate them directly, put a tube right into their glottis. And what we say, bag them down. We just uh, uh, do uh, bag compressions. And maybe it'll take 20 minutes to get the snake to a, a level of anesthesia to, to do a procedure. Um, and uh, the pre-meds may shorten that period. Uh, but I've lost several snakes now uh, to what I attribute as multiple drug interactions going on. Uh, and so I prefer, when I bring my animals in, and I, I prefer not using those pre-meds. I just stay with the old way of using isofluorine if I need to do an invasive procedure. Or I just use a lidocaine block if it's, you know, getting a biopsy, a cutaneous biopsy. Uh, but I, I do, I, I try to keep the drugs down uh, uh, to uh, a minimum as, as much as I can. And these are experiences not based on a lot of animals. Yes, these are, you know, you, 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 you could be one out of a hundred or one out of a thousand, but if you're the one, you're, it's a hundred percent. And so I don't have a hundred animals that I've given all these pre-meds to. Uh, that I can say, oh, statistically, I've lost 10% or 20%. Uh, so uh, those are decisions I, I make based upon my clinical experience. And a lot of veterinarians and MDs do that. Their clinical experience means a lot. And it may not be necessarily something written up in a textbook. Right. That's a, that's a good point. So something else that you've, maybe we can sort of transition into, into viruses. You've done some work with, uh, with testidine herpes viruses, and that, that's an interesting group. Uh, maybe you could talk a bit about some of the research you've done with that in sea turtles and, uh, and, and in other species. Well, it's, what's interesting, especially the colonians, is there, there are more reports of herpes viruses and, and colonians where you're know, dealing with 300 and what 50 species or whatever the, the current number is of species of colonians and um and, and it's a relatively small uh group of of reptiles i mean the biggest i mean we have say 11,700 species described and i i expect you're familiar with the reptile database yeah yes yeah Okay, so that's what many of us use 
to go with what the current status is. And when I was in graduate school, the number of reptiles described uh, recognized as species was about 7,500. And that's, say, 19, early 70s. Right. Because that's what was in textbooks. Uh, and, uh, and today, now we have the, the database that keeps on going, churning out, you know, describing and accepting uh, new species that are being described. And a lot of that has to do with sequencing. Uh, for instance, there was a salamander, and there still is, it's in genus Petracoseps in California, and it was thought to be one species, and now it's turned out to be like 20. Every mountain has a different species on it where they're found. And so a lot of the, the you know, going from 7,500 in, in the 70s to 11,700, a lot has to do with sequencing. I mean, certainly there are new, brand new species that are being found. But a lot of it has to do with uh, things that were considered sibling species that look very, very similar, but turn out to be genetically, you know, different. Uh, so that's what accounts for a lot of the increase in the uh, new species uh, that uh, are uh, are being uh, d described, and and it makes it very confusing now to know exactly, you know. If you go back in the literature, unless there's a very specific location given to where that species was found, you have no idea of what you were working with uh, at that time. Uh, I work with mud puppies, uh, Nectaris maculosus, very large distribution for that species. Now they're being broken up into multiple species. Uh, so what I worked with, who knows? They came from a scientific company that sold Nectaris, and I have no idea where they originated from. And unless you know the point of origin, uh, you're at a loss. Uh, another great example are the black rat snake group, which is called a complex. The the eastern and the black rat snake is now brought up, you know, brought up or broken up into three somewhat distinct. You know, subgroups, genomic subgroups, but that's that. That's not the final answer. There's going to be more work done on that to really figure out the the whole complexity of the black rat snake population. Um, there are some salamanders that hybridize and and form these uh, really aberrant karyotypes, uh, ambistomids, uh, salamanders in the Midwest. So there's still a lot to be done. Uh, to just figure out uh, genetically the, the composition uh, of these uh, uh, these various species, and and how you know that affects the overall physiology of those of those animals. Uh, you have certain animals that are grouped into the same species that are from the northern part of the range to the southern part of the range uh, are vastly different in their physiology. And so where do you make that separation? You know, how do you make that separation? And that, that becomes, even with like with PCR, you look at sequencing. Okay, you say that, you know, animal A and animal B share 90% of their genome of a very specific genes that are being used uh, for characterizing these, uh, these uh, animals. I said, and so, where do you make the separation? 
is is it 87 percent difference I mean it's homologous if it's below 90 is is you know 89 mean percent homology mean they're distinctly different uh, and it's very hard to know where do you you have this this line of that's continuous where do you make the cut between one species and the next um, and that hasn't I don't think been really to me it's been uh, I, I can get out of the the, the, the literature that easily where that separation is made. And uh, so there's a lot of, of things, some very basic things uh, yet to, uh, uh, to be done with, uh, with, with these animals. So you go back to colonians, got 350 some odd animals, but there is still quite a bit of variability. You would think, okay, 350, how much, how much diversity is there? It is. It's somewhat, um, I mean, uh, it's quite a bit of diversity within the colonians. And then you say, okay, we're going to go back to herpes virus. Herpes viruses and colonians. Well, there are two broad categories. We have the herpes viruses that are in the aquatic uh, uh, colonians. And then we have within the aquatic group, we can break that up into sea turtles and freshwater turtles. And then we have the tortoises. And so how the, these viruses uh, can be separated out in these different groups. Like within tortoises, I think there's at least five different genotypes now, or six. Uh, and it gets very confusing because the names that are used in the literature aren't necessarily what they're going to be ultimately named when we have more genetic information on them. Right. Uh, and that just adds the complexity uh, of it. Okay, so let's let's look at I mean, the work that I have done, primarily I give the credit to my graduate students. Most laboratories, really active research laboratories, uh, are because of the graduate students that are using those labs. Um, prior to, uh, say, 2000, um, I had graduate students that just started getting into looking at molecular phylogeny. Uh, around now, it's become much more routine. Uh, but at that time, uh, it uh, really uh, wasn't. And only small sequences of uh, these various viruses were uh, uh, were uh, determined uh, and used uh, diag diagnostically. Now they become, I mean, they're, they're much more uh, doable than, say, back in the late 90s. But I had a graduate student, Francesco Origi, uh, that worked with uh, uh, herpes virus infection in uh, Herman's uh, tortoises. Um, and we use those uh, because they're, uh, if you look at the, uh, the uh, herpes virus infections, the earliest reports, uh, come out of the European literature uh, with Hermans and Greek tortoises and then Russian tortoises. And they're seeing appear to be certain species like Russian tortoises that, you know, the evidence suggests that, that, uh, that Russian tortoises are carriers and that you don't want to mix Russian tortoises with other tortoises. Um, and, um, and then there are variants between Greeks and Hermans and susceptibility differences between these different species. 
and 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 one they, there may be a much higher mortality than in another. So to get back, Francesco originally worked with with uh, uh, the one, one particular isolate uh, of the of a herpes virus that was isolated from a Hermann's tortoise, and that he put back uh, in in uh, a small group of Hermann's tortoises, and was able then to follow the infection over time. And he dissected out all the nerves in the brain of, of his research animals, dissected wow. out the nerves and identified all the nerves and then did PCR on all those nerves to identify which ones had the herpes virus and, and which didn't. And so this herpes virus, and I forgot which colonia, maybe colonial herpes virus five or three, that's how some of them are named. Yeah. Uh, just in the order at which they've been found. And um, and so uh, he found out that the herpes virus and a number of his tortoise got, sequest got more sequestered in the brain than in other tissues in the animal's body. So these animals get infected, some recover, and the virus winds up in the brain. And they may then uh, have a uh, uh, recrudescence at some point. Uh, down in the future when these animals get stressed. Um, so they can get these very long-term infections as, as, as far as the evidence shows that they, they can maintain infections for quite a bit of time. Um, and there are other organs. I mean, there's a mycoplasma, a bacteria in desert tortoises, but it's in lots of other tortoises. Uh, that is a much more also a, a chronic infection, uh, but it tends not to kill uh, as many animals initially as the herpes. When, our, when that herpes, has, when you have an outbreak in a collection, uh, there is uh, a pretty uh, widespread mortality. That's that's really interesting. And there's also sort of the sea turtle varieties. How, how do the clinical manifestations differ between the, the testudinid and the, the colonid varieties of herpes virus? Well, the, uh, the, you have to go back to what was what has been described in the order in which they uh, these infections were described. But the the earliest uh, there was work done, uh, and this was at Cayman Turtle Farm, which there was really some uh, some really good information that got published. But uh, anyway, Cayman Turtle Farm we started working there in 1979. Uh, when there was actually an outbreak of this uh, pulmonary disease uh, in, uh, in turtles that uh, uh, turned out to be fungal pneumonia and, again, was tied to temperature and, and went to temperatures. Even that came in turtle farm, got down to like 23 degrees, uh, which uh, uh, affected their immune system enough uh, that they had these outbreaks of this, uh, this fungal disease. And, and many fungi and, and reptiles grow better at uh, lower temperatures and also uh, may uh, use uh, uh, arthropods uh, in, 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 their, in their life uh, history. Um, and um, But uh, anyway, to, back to at, at Cayman Turtle Farm, the very first disease that was seen as a outbreak was called gray patch disease. And, uh, and, and that was worked on by a group of virologists uh, at the University of Miami. 
Um, Harold Haynes was one. Uh, there are several others on, on the papers. And they described this herpes virus uh, in these young uh, uh, neonate uh, green turtles. And these were animals that were, I think, uh, the minimum age was uh, they were animals that were over 56 days of age, uh, uh, you know, post-hatching, and under a year. That's when this particular disease, and it was a skin wow. disease primarily that we know of, uh, that was a skin disease. And by the time I started working on this in the late 70s, uh, it, the outbreaks I don't think were as severe. And it took me a while to find some cases of gray patch. And we did. We, we worked up a few cases, and we had that material stored back for a long period of time. Um, and, and this is pre-sequencing era. I mean, it was really uh, a lot of it had to do with the virus and culture. And this group was able to grow out this virus to a certain degree in, in uh, cell culture. But then it was lost. The original virus, that virus uh, from the University of Miami group, you know, either a freezer went down or there are all kinds of things that can go wrong with and, and lose samples, uh, especially if you have things frozen back in an ultra freezer. Um, a lot of people have backup and use liquid nitrogen. They have a big, you know, tank of liquid nitrogen for their really important samples. Uh, because if your ultra freezer goes down, especially if it's a Friday evening and you get an emergency call that you're, instead of minus 70, now your freezer is minus 40. And what the hell do you do? That's a whole something else that, you know, that, that you, you don't learn about until it happens to you. And um, and so uh, the Miami group lost their great patch agent. And and then in the 80s, they started seeing this disease. I can't say if it was anyway. There was a, a disease called Let disease, lung, eye, and trachea disease. And uh, we worked on it initially in the early 80s and really didn't know. We were only able to identify a uh, certain uh, uh, parasites that uh, uh, they're trematodes, that are blood trematodes, that we were able to identify eggs of these trematodes in the lungs and a lot of inflammation in the lungs we thought maybe was due to these trematodes or trematode eggs. Uh, but as it turns out, when we worked on subsequent cases, there was a herpes virus uh, that we identified uh, in, those, uh, in those turtles. And then quite a bit of research has been done on that uh, herpes virus. Whereas the gray patch agent is gone, uh, no one has uh, an isolate of that. So we don't know how that particular agent relates to uh, this uh, left lung, eye, and trachea disease agent. We, we just don't have that information. And then, of course, there's fibropapilloma, which is a now work recognized worldwide. Uh, as a tumor that uh, is present uh, in uh, uh, sea turtles. Uh, in most of the sea turtles, uh, the, this uh, fibropapilloma has been seen in the various species. Um, and, but it has a, a higher prevalence in green turtles, uh, less so in loggerheads and then less so in other species of, of uh, sea turtles. Uh, but uh, it, we worked on that for a number of years before we finally identify a herpes virus. Uh, that was in the uh, early 90s. 
uh, that we had just not recognized previously. Um, and we had electron microscopy to back that up. And, um, and, and then as uh, sequencing became more popular, uh, so much more has been, has been identified now looking at various uh, variants of, uh, of this virus. And, and some of these variants uh, are found in certain geographic locations of the virus. Uh, but this virus now is recognized worldwide uh, in sea turtles. And, um, and there are some animals now that, uh, that can carry this virus in what appears to be normal skin. So figuring out why certain turtles will break uh, with uh, this uh, uh, disease after they're infected with this herpes virus and other animals uh, may be genetically resistant. And we don't know, I mean, exactly what accounts for that, uh, that difference because in any population, you don't see 100% infection. Uh, there are, there's animals that are infected and those that are not. And what makes an animal resistant? That's you know, a question of the ages that we're always asking with all kinds of different uh, you know, uh, path potential pathogens like E. coli. There are some that are very, you know, very, use the word pathogenic, and there are some E. coli that are not, and they, they differ genetically. Um, and then turtles differ from turtle to turtle, you know, what, what makes turtle A susceptible and turtle B, no. So those are, those are questions for the ages. Yeah, especially when it comes to viruses, you think about how they sort of integrate into the host genetic architecture. So are there certain genes or uh, that, that have sort of protective capacity? That, that That's sort of a question, and but something tough to analyze. It can be. Dan, it comes down to money. Uh, it, it, it's money and having a lab. Like a lab. Laboratories really set up to study the uh, immune system of, uh, of reptiles is there's a lot more that has been done with amphibians. Uh, primarily, a lot of that has to do with these these worldwide outbreaks with chytrids. Uh, that uh, you know, there's an extinction going on in amphibians that uh, does not look very good uh, for the future of uh, of, of uh, these animals. Uh, but a tremendous amount of work. Uh, if you look at the number of publications on chytrid infections and then look at the number of publications on you know any fungal disease in reptiles or even in the herpes viruses in turtles which probably is the the, the top pathogen that has been worked on uh in turtles and tortoises uh and and there are more herpes viruses described in turtles and tortoises than all the other reptiles put together and, and, and why the herpes virus has become so important in this very ancient group of, uh, of animals um, that we don't know. Right. It's interesting to think about and a lot of room for, for future research. So, something that you brought up, uh, brought to mind a paper, the mention of the trematodes. It, there was a paper that looked at some blood, uh, the hemorrhagians in uh, alligator snapping turtles. And I, I have experience working at a study site where we saw cutaneous lesions 
in common snapping turtles. And uh, I'm curious if you've ever seen that in common snapping turtles where they get these huge masses on the head. It almost, it's not like a, a fiber papilloma, but it, 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 it's just these kind of like welts. And um, I'm curious if you've ever seen that in, in Calydra before or, or other turtles and, and what the cause you know, was. I, I haven't. Uh, I've worked with, with them with both uh, common and alligator snapping turtles sporadically as cases come into the clinic, but uh, there are other people here in, uh, at, uh, with uh, Florida Wildlife Commission. I have long-term studies with alligator snapping turtles. A uh, fellow, Kevin Inge, who's who works for the commission as a biologist. He's also a reptile uh, person. And there are several other people studying uh, alligator snapping turtles. So I'd, I have to inquire about that. I would say the, the, the big, uh, big difference is, uh, again, the breeding operations. Uh, that have been set up for reintroduction of alligator snapping turtles and some of the, the fungal problems they've had. I know that there is um, uh, there is a new virus. I, I, I may have, uh, it may be an abstract on it. Anyway, there, there's an interesting, uh, there's been an outbreak of, uh, of um, some uh, an infectious disease in, in uh, Florida soft-shell turtles. Uh, which are being aquacultured in uh, in, in uh, southern Florida, uh, but there's um, uh, some infectious disease, and now there's a, a brand new viral group uh, that has been identified in these animals. But uh, they're going to have to do transmission studies uh, to get a better handle on it. You know, when you when you isolate a, a new virus uh, in an animal, especially if it's from a, a whole new group. Um, question is, is this, uh, incidental, is this an incidental finding? Because I mean, there are myriads and myriads of viruses out there that in animals and, and plants that do nothing, uh, that have a pretty good parasitic relationship with, uh, with the host. So when you identify a new agent, uh, what you're looking for is, uh, is there anything comparable in another, and, you know, is there a similar infectious agent in another animal that has similar lesions uh, that is associated with that uh, particular bug? Um, or ultimately, you do transmission studies, which can be also very costly, very time-consuming. Um, and that was done with the fibropapilloma uh, uh, agent uh, by Larry Herbst. In the early uh, in the 90s, who who worked here got his P. He's a uh, veterinarian who then went on for his PhD, um, and he worked uh, with fibropapilloma and the herpes virus uh, that we believe to be the causative agent of of uh, of uh, those uh, those tumors, and um, and 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 quite a bit of work now by others. Uh, there are, that has been done and ongoing. There's a, a number of ongoing, large ongoing studies, um, and trying to sort out this thing of uh, of what makes one animal susceptible and another animal not. Um, that's still uh, going on, but those work that work is only going on because of money. Um, Larry Herbst was able to tie in to a rehab facility. Uh, and, 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 and the Florida Keys, um, that the owner was willing to invest time and money 
keeping these turtles, taking care of them, uh, doing transmission studies, uh, measuring tumor growth, uh, a whole bunch of different things uh, that the owner was willing. And then it amounted to hundreds of thousands of dollars. If, if a grant was needed to do this work, if we needed to rely upon a grant from Fish and Wildlife Service or National Marine Fishery Service, which both have uh, uh, work with uh, uh, sea turtles or, or uh, cover uh, the listing of sea turtles, uh, and um, th they didn't have the money to do this work. It would never have been done. And even today, it's th those kind of studies are extremely costly. And, uh, and, and where's that money going to come from? Uh, it just doesn't happen on, on, on its own. And in the end, uh, you, 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 you're going to have to pay for, for supplies and, and, and labor. And labor is the big thing. The hardest thing to get money for is the salary for a graduate student. It's, it's, it's much easier to get money for expendables or to a certain level equipment. But getting money to a graduate student cost per year is like forty to fifty thousand uh, dollars. When you look at indirect costs and other expenses and so on, but to hire to bring in a graduate student and and labs, good labs run on graduate students, uh, especially having at least two going, so one can transfer information to the other. That's that's a really interesting inside insider perspective, uh, and 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 it, it it probably helps explain to certain people, especially in the captive sort of hobby area, that that why uh, information is is kind of vague sometimes. It, it, a lot of that has to do with, like you said, the funding, and there's just a, there's no way to sort of spearhead a lot of this. Uh, so really the most, interesting. The most funding we ever received. Uh, is the most funding has been with turtles and tortoises. Um, second, crocodilians, a uh, little bit. And last, which is the biggest group of reptiles, <laughs> squamates. Uh, I've gotten money from, I said, some drug studies and lizards. Um, but um, when you look at outbreaks of infectious disease in lizards, by far, the most common are, are skin diseases and, and, and different squamates, and both lizards and, uh, and snakes. Uh, but still, the, the most money has been with colonial sea turtles and, uh, and tortoises. And for us, desert tortoises uh, out west, uh, working with mycoplasma, which we identified as a pathogen uh, in these, as a potential pathogen uh, in desert tortoises, both in captivity and in, in the wild, and, and the same uh, with uh, gopher tortoises. But far less money, uh, we've, most of our money uh, we've, uh, for gopher tortoises has, has come privately, uh, and, and some has come from the, the National Science NSF. And prior to the chytrid outbreaks in amphibians, National Science Foundation put very little, if any, money into disease problems in, in, in uh, reptiles or amphibians. Uh, they, if, if you try to get money to, to work on a disease in these animals, they, they would say, go to uh, 
you know, uh, NIH. And NIH could care less about, you know, problems in these animals. And they say, oh, go to NSF. And it was the Kittred outbreak, I believe anyway, uh, which was first described, I think, the first papers came out in the late 90s, say 98, 97, 98. And almost at the same time, described in, in wild uh, frogs in Panama, and dendrobatic frogs, and then at the National Zoo. Uh, the chytrids were almost uh, identified at the same time in, in, in the field and in, um, uh, in captivity. And again, look at the number if you do a search on papers published uh, on chytrids versus all the reptiles. But I mean, it dwarfs uh, just about everything done with, uh, with reptiles. And it was at that point in time that NSF then started. It opened up a new area of funding uh, in, in uh, uh, infectious disease ecology, ecology of infectious disease uh, in these animals. And that, and that made a big difference. It made a big difference. Uh, but still for reptiles overall, uh, not as much money. Uh, has become available, but uh, most of it can be tied up in fibropapilloma and probably my mycoplasmosis and herpes. Those three probably account for most of uh, the real fundable research. Yeah, yeah, that's the both of those projects are real interesting to sort of. I, I I'm from California. I've worked with desert tortoises quite a bit and at the uh the desert tortoise natural area that was something i think one of the first areas where the mycoplasmosis was uh yeah we had worked uh, on that uh in 1989 um and that was all uh, due uh to uh, uh a graduate student at ucla uh was looking at uh, water dynamics and desert tortoises in three different populations and in 88, I think he had a number of his animals didn't emerge from burrows and they were found dead. And in 89, a small amount of money became available through at that time BLM, uh, Bureau of Land Management, uh, to work on this uh, die-off uh, occurring at the DTNA. And so I went out, actually I was, I was in Hawaii getting samples of tumors from uh, green turtles in Hawaii and flew to uh, L.A. and then worked on desert tortoises, uh, you know, on a completely different, you know, issue. Uh, but uh, I've spent quite a bit of time out there uh, over the years uh, doing doing field work. And, uh, and the main biologist is uh, Dr. Christine Berry, who has uh, been studying these animals throughout her whole career. And she recognized uh, that something was killing tortoises out of the DTNA and she got a small amount of money and we initially then we started doing work in 89 on that uh, another biologist easily could have not recognized the problem for what it was and uh, and actually some when we started working with mycoplasma in desert tortoises I had friends colleagues that were biologists not veterinarians that really didn't considered disease as an issue, as a problem in wild populations, for whatever reason. They just thought it was sort of a joke. 
that uh, that this organism had been identified desert tortoises and it was considered to be important and and uh, and some some friends sort of chided me on that and think it was and it's significant and that, and that whole view of infectious disease now uh, in the conservation of uh, these animals is is all important. Yeah, that's yeah, right. That, and it goes back to something you said earlier, too, about the fact that you have to, I, I think, sort of the Koch's postulates have to be proven for something. It could be that whatever was occurring with the desert tortoises was something that was totally fine. But you needed someone like Dr. Barry to 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 really look into it more. And then you see this is really a problem. Oh, yeah, re- that initial recognition and then getting the money for something new. That had not been done before. I mean, we got a large amount of money that came out of the Nature Conservancy out of Las Vegas to, to work on desert tortoises that, uh, that were uh, uh, being translocated and relocated and, and taken off for private land because of development. And, and we got a sizable uh, uh, you know, several-year grant. But when that was initially reviewed, uh, some of the reviewers thought Especially, the we we had a a, a big part of the of, of this project was to develop a a blood test, a serological test for determining exposure of tortoises uh, to uh, to this new mycoplasma, and reviewers of uh, the proposal thought we were just looking to get money to do something esoteric that really uh, would not have any application. And as it turned out, that that ELISA test was used, unfortunately, in, in not the proper way, uh, but used as, as a means uh, to uh, euthanize uh, uh, tortoises uh, that was uh, turned out to be uh, what we call seropositive for exposure to this organism. And, and, and that's not what we intended at all. It just got misused and was being used out of convenience um, as a way to reduce the number of desert tortoises that they had to hold at this conservation facility. Um, all of that is shut down now. I mean, there was a big conservation facility that was funded for a number of years. The tortoises coming off of developed land in Clark County, where Las Vegas is found, uh, was located. And, and that money was, uh, went into uh, establishing this conservation facility where tortoises were kept. But it also was a great place for animals to be exposed uh, to various, you know, prob- you know, infectious agents. Because not only did they collect desert tortoises off this land, but they also collected escaped exotic tortoises that people had as pets that escaped and wound up with these desert tortoises such as Herman's tortoises and Russian tortoises and so on. And so what a disaster uh, to, to bring in animals like that into a, a, a fairly dense facility where you could have tortoises that have been never exposed to whatever these you know, exotics were carrying. So uh, it, it was a mess for now. It's it, it was all shut down several years ago. Um, it was it was shut down. I'm not sure exactly what they're doing with the tortoises still being taken off the you know, land being developed. And I think many of them were uh, were relocated to a fenced-in area 
uh, outside of Las Vegas that they were monitoring over time, that Fish and Wildlife was monitoring, and that many of the tortoises that went into that that facility or that enclosure were were killed by coyotes. That's that. So Which, the, yeah, they so they were taking the the desert tortoises and moved, this was probably for the land developing the land and then bringing them to a was it temporary right. holding or and and right. mixing them. That's well, uh, they were going to eventually open up the, that area that was confined. Especially uh, it wasn't that whatever the interstate that goes down to uh, Baker. Um, anyway, it goes right by this, this area. And so it's not that far from, from traffic and, 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 uh, you know, lots of tortoises are killed by cars and, and there are underground passageways that have been created for tortoises trying to reduce that mortality. And, uh, I mean, mortality comes in so many different ways. Uh, raisins are horrible for killing tortoises, um, and um, and it's it's not easy to get rid of raisins. Uh, not as easy as you think it would be because they're a migratory bird and they're protected by Migratory Bird Act. And and there are groups that fight for the protection of the ravens. And there are others that want to just get rid of them. So it's a very complex uh, situation. But coyotes were killing a lot of the translocated animals. And maybe the barriers, the fences have been taken down. I, I'm not sure what the status is. Uh, last tortoise, I generally go to the annual Desert Tortoise Council meeting, which is generally held in February, often in Las Vegas, sometimes in last year was in uh, St. George in Utah. Uh, but since COVID, I haven't gone. Uh, it's been virtual, uh, or last year was partially virtual, partially in the flesh. And uh, But I'll probably go back next year. So I don't know what the status of that uh, particular uh, area. It's a sizable track of land, but uh, still, it was um, it was decimated by coyotes. Yeah, th- yeah. That the, the um, that, that's interesting that it was shut down and and, and everything. What what was the process for like developing the the Elisa? What was the process for that? I mean, it, like, what is the sort of underpinning chemistry of that? Well, what, what the ELISA stand for enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, and it's uh, colorimetric. It, it's ultimately based on the color change. Uh, when uh, all of your um, uh, reagents uh, line up and, and, and attach, um, and there are multiple, there are different types of ELISAs. Uh, the one we uh, uh, develop is called indirect ELISA, in that uh, ultimately we're measuring antibody uh, in a uh, tortoise that's very specific uh, for this particular species. And so uh, initially we had to isolate uh, uh, tortoise uh, immunoglobulin, which is called IGY is the dominant one. we have uh, five classes of antibody mammals, at least five. And reptiles, there are two major classes, and there's a third that's not that well re- re- resolved. But primarily uh, with with humans and mammals, we have IgG. Uh, in reptiles, they call that same antibody, IgY. And, um, and then there's IgM, uh, which uh, is... Um, 
basically five molecules related to IgG that are attached. It's a pentamere, and uh, whereas I, IgY is a monomere. And so uh, in the immune response, you get infected with a bug. The first antibody to respond generally is IgM. That's this early phase antibody that develops. And then it switches over after a period of months, weeks to months. Uh, it switches over to IgY in reptiles or IgG in, in mammals um, as the dominant antibody uh, that may differ chemically uh, in, in, in terms of their structure. Uh, so one is a pentamere and the other is a monomere. And, um, and so to determine exposure, you want to be able to be able to measure that very specific antibody uh, and exclude antibodies to all other things. And so the ELISA is based on that principle uh, that uh, we produced a mouse antibody that recognized tortoise antibody. That's, yeah, that's... And, that, yeah. and, and the other part of this is we use these plastic trays to do this reaction in. They're called 96-well trays. And the plate is covered with the antigen that you want to uh, determine exposure to. So it gets, say, closed, it gets, you know, covered with this mycoplasma. And then other reagents are added. And if, if everything lines up, you get a color change. If the antibody is there and you're measuring the antibody and it's in a certain range, then we call it seropositive. And there are papers, that, there are multiple papers that have been published on this, uh, on the methodology and the specificity and sensitivity of the test. And there are certain... Uh, certain attributes of a test that you uh, that need to be um, within a workable range uh, for these kinds of tests to be of value. Um, and, and, and one uh, attribute, one is called specificity and another is sensitivity. Um, and, and specificity basically is how specific is your reagent to that particular antigen. And sensitivity is the ability of, of your test to pick out up very small amounts. You know, how sensitive is your test? And how specific is your test? And I will say, and this is like with COVID or with almost any uh, kind of testing that is done, it's, it follows the same uh, kinds of, uh, of, of uh, principles. Um, almost no, just about no diagnostic test is 100% specific and 100% sensitive. As you increase, say, the sensitivity, the specificity goes down. So you got 100% sensitivity, you have less than 100% uh, specificity and vice versa. As one goes up, the other goes down. And the ideal test should probably be above, say, 90%. And there are ways to figure this out statistically. Um, and there are curves then you can create uh, for what is normal and, and, and uh, what is not. And so it's always important to have controls. So we have uh, controls uh, 
from studies that we've done where we know the tortoise was negative and we have others that we know the tortoise is positive and we can show that the ELISA correlates with the presence of the organism of infection and that it's seronegative when it's not infected. But so testing is a very, I mean, there are standardized methods of uh, establishing a reliable and recognizable uh, uh, serological test. And there's a whole range of different serological tests over the years that have been developed. And some are called what are called gold standards. That's the test that all other tests are compared to, to make sure it is sensitive and specific. And we spent years, I mean, years doing this. Um, and, and then there are other you know, research labs that have tried to develop similar tests, but they have not worked out as well. And I'll say that we can you know, look at the literature and we have uh, you know, almost 30 years of research on this. And then uh, because of money availability, you know, there are people who are out there to get money, even though they may not by themselves have the credentials to do the study. They have the ability to hire people to come in and, and do it. And there are, there are many examples of, uh, of that. Uh, but we put together a team of people here and worked on mycoplasma as, as well as anyone could do uh, over a long period of time. And there's still lots of unknowns. There are new mycoplasma still yet to be described. And some of them are less pathogenic than others. Um, and so there's still much, much work to, to be done with that. And also, again, the immune system of the tortoises. You know, we got different populations of tortoises uh, that are genomically distinct. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, that still is yet to be, uh, you know, uncovered all, all of, uh, you know, to say Texas tortoises. Texas tortoises appear to be more resistant based on friends that work with them and working on sick tortoises appear to be more resistant and desert tortoises to the mycoplasma that we identified originally from desert tortoises. So, uh, you know, all these things are, are you know, uh, are involved in, in uh, ultimately resulting in that. And, you know, why an outbreak here and no outbreak there? Right. That, that's a great explanation for sort of the, the, uh, the ELISA test. And I, I'm curious, is there, I, I've dealt with some desert tortoises captives in the past that had mycoplasmosis and there was some talk about a treatment that you would use to flush the, the bacteria out. I, I don't know if that's something that's. I, yeah, it is. And there's actually someone has put together a proposal to look at it. So I don't want to uh, talk that much about it other than, um, uh, Jim Jarko, who's a veterinarian in, in Tucson, who's worked with uh, reptiles, tortoises, uh, his whole career, and he's in the same age group as, as me, and so he's been working with them 40, you know, 50 years, and, uh, and he started out as a keeper at the uh, Columbus Zoo, and then went to vet school at Ohio State, and, and then went to Tucson, and, um, and has been working with uh, reptiles since, and he's come up with... Uh, 
some uh, he has um, is a, a very short abstract published uh, in a uh, in a uh, from a proceedings uh, that uh, I have uh, a, a copy of. Um, but I have another friend that's that's putting together proposals. So I don't want to go into it other than uh, there are these nasal flushes uh, that are used uh, because of it, and they have to do with um, uh, where that organism is located. Um, for the most part, uh, the mycoplasma is, is on the surface uh, of... Uh, uh, has a very close association with the surface epithelium in the olfactory, uh, in the nasal mucosa. Uh, you know, tortoises, turtles, uh, tortoises have a very large nasal cavity in front of their eyes. Two big chambers. Uh, dorsally, it's olfactory. Eventually, it's mucus uh, for getting rid of, uh, you know, uh, just junk coming in and as they breathe. And so they have this mucus and, and olfactory epithelium. And the, uh, the organism gets in there. It starts out uh, at the, the, the lower parts, the more ventral parts of these uh, chambers, uh, and then moves up dorsally. And I think it affects their whole you know, uh, ability to uh, select the right plants to eat. And, uh, because tortoises are very selective. Even on the same plant, they may choose certain leaves to eat and reject others. Uh, they're very, very, in, in, in a year, they could be eating 150 different plants. And so you look at how simple we try to make their life when we bring them into captivity. Uh, we're giving them commercial diets or some, we try to get at some natural diets. For instance, I feed most of my tortoises now, primarily my, especially my young ones, get a puncha. I, I buy prickly pear uh, pads at a, at a Latino store here in Gainesville uh, that sells pads. And I used to, some have still some thorns on them, and, and I'll remove all the spines uh, if there are any spines on there. And, and that's what my probably 50% of the diet of my baby tortoises now is a puncha. And they'll get commercial diet uh, maybe once or twice a week. Uh, but I try to stay as more natural. Uh, as uh, uh, as I can, and we don't know what the you know dietary effects on the immune system of these animals, and um, and, and the problem with the with the captive tortoises is that people, I mean, they tortoises can live a long time with with mycoplasmosis uh, if they're you know being fed properly, being offered food, uh, they they will continue to eat. They may not be able to select out what they like and don't like as much as a, as a healthy tortoise. Um, uh, but uh, their, their, their diets are probably affect their, I mean, their immune system in all, all kinds of ways. Uh, but a tortoise with mycoplasmosis can, can live for, you know, quite a long time in captivity. In the wild is different uh, because, as I said, of, you know, and a, probably an effect on their ability to choose the right plants. And then drought uh, probably adds on to uh, uh, the difficulties they face in, uh, uh, in the wild on, on top of these, these pathogens. They're, they're, they're living in this very dry world. And there's one tortoise 
that was found in the east of Mojave that was weighed and happened to be found right at the time of the first rain, hadn't rained in, in, in a year. And that tortoise put on 30% increase in its body mass from drinking water. Wow. Which is pretty remarkable. Yeah, that that is. Uh, I I was recently in Florida. We were catching musk turtles, and there was one that a female. Yeah. I was convinced she was gravid, but then she let out. I, I picked her up a second time about a minute and a half later, and she felt about half as as heavy as she was. Just <laughs> well, they don't have the aquatic turtles tend not to have the bladder as big a lot. Even I mean, sea turtles, but in even in uh, in freshwater turtles. Uh, their bladder isn't uh, quite as large as a tortoise. Right, uh, yeah. Whenever it rains up... Oh, oh go ahead. Okay. Yeah. When, yeah, whenever it rains up in Delaware, the uh, terrapins put on a lot of weight because they just gorge themselves on the fresh water that they can find. Um, and it's just really funny seeing the comparison between going out when it's dry and going out after a heavy rain and seeing how much flabbier the females get. They, they like it, the, the fat will literally spill over their shells. It's hilarious. Yeah, yeah that, I mean, what, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, the, the biology with, um, of, of these animals, uh, tied to, to water is, is, is pretty amazing. Uh, what these animals can uh, can withstand, and uh, certainly there are examples of drought in uh, in the Southwest where there've been large uh, die-offs uh, correlated uh, with uh, just lack of rain. Yeah, that's really interesting. There's something else uh, too that I've I've noticed with certain species. It seems like they it it's it they'll get very uh, swollen, distended hind limb pockets. And it's like, it's not quite a demic. It's just like they're storing water in there. I mean, it, what, do you think that could be something that's going on or what, what is that? I don't know. It's one of the, uh, the, the limbs is where they uh, generally uh, store quite a bit of their fat uh, it's, uh, in the inguinal pectoral areas. If you open up a, a tortoise internally, they don't deposit a lot of fat at all internally, even in, in heavy animals, uh, maybe some around the heart. Uh, but those fat pads and those, and uh, in, in, in there, the base of their limbs is, is fairly prominent. But I've never, um, I haven't uh, necropsied any, any tortoises, say that uh, were, that I know of uh, that were in a, in a drought and then had an opportunity to drink and to, to be able to, because those sites, it may, it may be that there's some level of, uh, of water being, uh, but it just is an odd place for, I mean, the bladder is really the, the site uh, in, in tortoises uh, for, and they're very selective in terms of, for instance, a lot, a lot of desert plants are uh, very high, especially in a, in a drought, very, very high in potassium. And so, and potassium is regulated uh, in your blood in a very narrow range. Uh, not like so sodium has a, you know, I mean, is, is, is a really wide range 
but you're looking at much higher. You know, sodium is, say, 130, 150 milliequivalents, and potassium is, say, 4 or 4.1. But you, you, you know, to go from say four to five can be lethal, right? And um, and so, how do they deal with that potassium? Well, they deal with it by sequestering in their bladder, and their bladder can differentially move different ions across the bladder wall. They just don't freely move from one side of the bladder into the systemic circulation. Uh, they're, they're highly regulated by hormones and and, and uh, other things, but that potassium is sequestered in the bladder. And we have actually, we have good data on that. I haven't published it and maybe one day I will, but I, I have a lot of, uh, uh, when I was doing uh, a necropsy on a desert tortoise is a whole day affair. And we got to the point where the cost of working up is we're doing organophosphates, organochlorines, all types of uh, micronutrients, macronutrients. Uh, the uh, the uh, a necropsy, a full necropsy with all the chemical analysis being done, is about ten thousand dollars on on a tortoise. And and we learned a lot by doing that. Um, but we were able to get the money through contracts uh, with uh, USGS, and uh, and still writing up. Uh, uh, papers from from uh, that data, uh, but so they take this potassium and stick it in their bladder, and they can sequester it there. And we've had some tortoises where potassium in their bladder is 100, 150 milliequivalents, uh, which is enough to kill a lot of animals. Uh, but they sequester it there, and when that first rain comes, they're able to flush out their bladder. And they, that's how they deal with uh, potassium and drought. And there are a number of people that have, uh, that have worked uh, on this. Uh, but also you have to realize the desert tortoise is at the edge of its range. Most of the, those animals probably evolved from populations in uh, Mexico uh, that uh, eventually moved north. Uh, and there's a distinct, at least one or two distinct species in Mexico. Uh, but they're from a very different type of area and from this thorn forest, uh, which is semi-tropical to tropical, um, maybe 500 miles south of the border. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, being able to regulate these electrolytes is, uh, is really uh, the difference between living and dying. I, I wonder, too, if they can uptake some of that into the shell. And, and that, that's something for like anoxia tolerance they certainly can do with bicarbonate and, and, and such. I mean, is that likely? It's possible. It's possible to, I, that I don't think anyone has, uh, boy, it, it, it would be a tough study to do. It, I mean, it's, it, it can be done, but, it, it, you know, people would look at that as more esoteric uh, then in terms of practical, I mean, we know calcium fluxes, uh, 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 between the shell and systemic circulation and, uh, that a lot of their, uh, calcium in, uh, for, uh, the eggshell is, uh, uh, is probably, um, uh, well, ultimately coming from the plants that they're, 
that they're feeding on that are high in calcium, which a puncher appears to, to at least be able to get good levels of calcium. Um, but uh, so there seems to be uh, dynamics between the dermal plates, the bone, the calcium that's in there, and systemic circulation. Whether sodium, potassium, or potassium, I, I just don't, I, I don't think anyone has done that, and I'm not, that would be a tough one to try to sort out. Whether that becomes a storage site, I my, my gut feeling it, it would it would have to be a salt, I mean, uh, uh, of, of some type, uh, like you know potassium phosphate or just like calcium phosphate. Like they, I mean, calcium is circulating as an ion, but it's also circulating as a salt, and it's also it's tied to uh, you know various proteins uh, that uh, are circulating, uh, you know. For instance, calcium, you know, is operating, you know, it's generally you can separate out males and females on calcium uh, and the uh, levels of calcium in their blood. Uh, so uh, and females having much higher calcium levels and then especially at the time uh, that they're uh, producing uh, eggs, uh, their, their calcium can go up above 20 uh, versus maybe 10 to 12 uh, milligrams percent as uh uh, in a in a normal range, uh, so uh, possible, uh, but I think the bladder is probably a major site uh, for uh, ionic regulation. Yeah, that that's a really interesting perspective, and and uh, it's cool to hear that it's something you going see, on. The now. kidney cannot reptile kidneys uh, cannot concentrate uh, urine. Uh, above blood uh, uh, osmolarity, uh, which is like 280 to 300 milliosmoles. Uh, they can't concentrate urine. So to get rid of salt, they need extra renal sites of salt secretion. And different reptiles have done it in different ways. Uh, sea, sea turtles have lacrimal glands. Uh, you wouldn't think that just the glands around the eye, but they're pretty extensive. That, that Hardarian lacrimal glands can get rid of all that salt that they're taking in constantly, but they do. Uh, they they operate quite well. Uh, but uh, tortoises don't have any salt glands. And uh, and so it's my, it's, if, if I get to write this paper uh, with their, you know, with, with, with all this uh, osmo. Uh, lality, uh, osmolarity data that I, that, uh, that we, uh, that we have. Um, I've had some of these animals, I mean, their bladder, uh, osmolarity has gone up to like 500, something inconceivable. Wow. And, and a mammal. Uh, I'm pulling that number. I'd have to look up it, but very high levels. Uh, yeah, that they're, um, uh, able to, uh, uh, to reach, um, and, and part of that is um, dealing with, um, you know, water loss. How, how do you, living in a dehydrating environment, how do you protect, uh, you know, from losing too much water? And, uh, and part of it is what's called BUN, their, their blood, urinary nitrogen, uh, which in us is, say, 30 milligrams percent or less. 
And in these animals, they can get up to several hundred. And, and, and that's what maintains this osmotic gradient a lot, and especially when they're hibernating or brumating in the winter. They're generally using skeletal muscle uh, breakdown for, uh, for their needs, and you'll see their, what's called a BUN, uh, be pretty high up right after they come out of hibernation or brumation, those that do brumate. Um, and um, so these are all, uh, you know, parts of their physiology for surviving in a very dehydrating environment. And we see, can see that very broadly. If we look at reptiles as a group from aquatic reptiles to those that are totally terrestrial, their, their nitrogen metabolism uh, varies depending upon their ecology. And, and, and that's pretty well, well recognized and reported. Right. So one other thing that's sort of interesting and, and, and not related to urinary tract, more the gastrointestinal anatomy, um, I, the, the whole sort of concept behind tortoises dealing with fruit consumption, uh, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of research in that area. I don't know. Uh, I've, I've heard that they're hindgut fermenters, but haven't seen that really quantified anywhere. Uh, I, um, the, be the best papers are by Karen Yarndall. Uh, who is head of the uh, Archicar Center for Cultural Research, uh, who is also a nutritionist. And she's uh, worked on nutrition of sea turtles, or most of uh, looking at digestibility and so on. And in certain populations, uh, she studied a uh, population of uh, green turtles in Anagua in the Bahamas since she was a graduate student. has um, a huge database on, on feeding and feeding grounds. Uh, for those, uh, for those uh, animals, and she's done some digestibility studies in yellow and red-footed tortoises, and so it's probably some of the. I mean, they're older papers now, but they're still uh, very, very good. Um, there are some that I think. Uh, uh, I mean, the diets do vary. Uh, you know, between I mean, different species. And then there's some data. There's still a lot that we still don't know. The, the, the best data for a tortoise is the desert tortoise, uh, looking at what they feed on. And, uh, and there's really, really good data uh, on that. And I expect they're probably taking uh, um, I, you know, the prickly pear fruit uh, that, they're, that I'm sure are consuming uh, also. Along. But what amazes me, though, is how they can eat the, the, you know, a plant with spines. Right. And I, I, I found spines you know, histologically in the tongue of most of the tortoises, <laughs> the desert tortoises I've worked on. I mean, they're constantly getting those foreign bodies in their tongue and they're adapted to it. They wow. somehow do it. And that's uh, pretty. And here I am worrying about them getting one spine. <laughs> I'm pulling out all the spines that, are, that I'm buying these supposedly spineless or reduced spine uh, puncha uh, for human consumption. And there's still spines in them. <laughs> and, and I'm plucking them out. That's fascinating. They have some sort of encapsulation or something that, that doesn't, it, yeah. It, yeah, yeah, it doesn't affect. Okay. Well, well, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Now I was going to say what is also somewhat similar is uh, you look at Hawksville sea turtles. Right. That have a feeding yeah. strategy of feeding on sponges, spongiferi. 
And uh, if you look at there, and I've, I've uh, opened up several for friends in biology who wanted to identify the sponges uh, that uh, they were feeding on. And you can do some of that by the morphology of the spicules. And so I was doing scanning EM on, uh, on uh, intestinal tract of uh, Hawksville sea turtles that feed a lot on sponges. And, and their GI tract is like, looks like fiberglass. There's so many spicules sticking into their gut. And the inflammatory response is almost nothing. <laughs> and, and, and spicules are notoriously noxious for, you know, people getting spicules in their hands from handling sponges. And so they've evolved a system where they tolerate them. And it doesn't bother them. Yeah, it's really incredible the immune adaptations that, that turtles and tortoises have. Uh, yeah. One other area uh, before we sort of can wrap things up here um, yeah. that I was curious about related to viruses is ranavirus. And um, I know that you helped with a paper that looked at sort of proving the Koch's postulates on that. Uh, right. but what your right. experience with that with that virus is? Well, others have uh, former graduate school student, uh, April uh, Johnson, uh, did her uh, Ph.D. on that. Uh, she originally was going to work with uh, herpes virus, uh, one that's you know that's been identified in desert tortoises, but that became problematic, and you know there, there were a number of issues. But right at the same time, uh, we had uh, been contacted uh, by the Wildlife Conservation Society, had been uh, a, a danger species. Uh, breeding program in St. Catharines Island, which is an island off of Georgia. Uh, that's it's pretty much been uh, uh, that part of it has been uh, closed closed down. Uh, but they had uh, populations of uh, they had uh, radiated they had uh, radiated tortoise population, but they had uh, some Burmese star tortoise. Know if they had a plowshare at the anyway, they may have had a plowshare at, uh, at the time, but. Um, anyhow, they, they started having a, a, a die-off, um, and, um, and, we, and we knew that they uh, at one time had uh, the intranucleic coccidiosis, but as it turns out, it, uh, it was this uh, uh, ranavirus, and we believe in, in April's study, uh, she was not able to demonstrate with the, the, the transmission from amphibians uh, because we believe it was coming out of uh, uh, from from amphibians, uh, because the uh, the Bronx Zoo had this outbreak uh, during a, it was at a very very rainy season, uh, lots of frogs, and they actually had a picture of um, he was a Burmese star, is either radiated Burmese eating a dead frog, and uh, so the thought was that the ranavirus more than likely was coming out of the amphibians. And um, April wasn't able to demonstrate that with her study, uh, but uh, she was, um, or, or um, others have. Others have. I think it's there's pretty convincing uh, data uh, showing uh, that uh, probably uh, amphibians are involved in this, uh, you know, life history of this virus, uh, being able to move. 
between from fishes to amphibians uh, to certain reptiles. And it, it, it has a very broad, uh, it infects a broad group of vertebrates. There are very few viruses that uh, infect reptiles uh, are known to infect other animals, especially mammals. Uh, we've seen that with West Nile virus in alligators that can go from alligators uh, to alligator or alligators to people. And so that has a pretty wide range. Uh, plus, you know, gets into all types of birds. And, um, and, uh, and then we have uh, the eastern equine encephalitis virus, western equine. The western equine encephalitis virus has been found to overwinter in Texas tortoises. So people thought that they may serve as a reservoir for western equine encephalitis, but that really hasn't been, I don't think, demonstrated. But overall, there are not that many viruses that jump from one class of vertebrates to another. And ronavirus appears to be one that uh, they can. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Are, are there any, in, this is just infectious disease in general, uh, in terms of reptiles where you don't, you see them prevalent in other uh, groups or classes, but you don't see them in, in testidines frequently? Again, say that again. Any sort of just infectious diseases in general that you see in in other reptiles. Yeah, but no, there's nothing um, really uh, that I know of. Just well, this endomyces is. I mean, this fungal shell disease uh, and systemic infections. uh, That uh, you know, there 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 are some that I mean, uh, but not. um, I mean, that endomyces is unique. Uh, to turtles, and uh, you know the mycoplasmic agazizi is unique. I mean, also, uh, but if you're just looking at the genus mycoplasma, I mean that's in a wide range of vertebrates. Right. Um, endomyces is not. Um, that appears to be much, I think, more specific uh, to, and I think uh, aquatic uh, uh, turtles. So at a generic level, things are, are fairly broad, but then at specific level, a lot of times they're... they're yeah, for the, for the most part, you know, ronavirus. You know, generally, like, ronavirus is considered a genus. Um, and, uh, you know, and then there's, you know, the various herpes viruses. It's at the specific level that they, uh, they that, they're, that they're different. Um, but, um, I mean, there are some oddball pathogens in reptiles that are just, have been described so far in in reptile, but there are some that are uh, in certain reptiles, and but then in insects. And then the question is, uh, with like commercial insects uh, such as crickets, uh, can they potentially carry things that can get into the insect? You know, feeding lizards. Uh, you know that. Uh, so uh, you know these. You know, these it becomes very, very complex trying to sort out the life cycles of uh, of uh, some of the, these bugs, and uh, and many of them we, especially the fungi. Those with, without PCR, we were in the dark. I mean, it, 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 probably the vast majority of uh, identifications are probably misidentifications 
and uh, in, in, in prior to PCR and sequencing. Lots of misidentifications with uh, uh, with reptiles. There's a, there's a real interesting bug. It's called Schizantiella. It's a fungus that's in snakes, and it's been seen sporadically uh, in you know, now from both colubrids to viperids. Uh, almost all the cases in the U.S. I think there may there might be one in Europe, one or two in Europe, but primarily uh, seen in the U.S. very sporadically. And it's a very weird-looking fungus that was misidentified initially. The first paper that came out uh, describing it was uh, it was considered to be a, an algae uh, that um, uh, had been identified in in, certain, in some mammals. Uh, very unusual uh, infection with this uh, with this algae, and um, and as it turned out, it really is a fungus, um, and it was misidentified, and, uh, and without PCR, that would have been impossible. Right. Because, yeah. it morpho because it morphologically, histologically, it it, it, it looks identical to this uh, this uh, uh, this algae. Uh, that has been seen in dogs and domestic animals, and, and of, you know, just a hodgepodge of different animals. Uh, but no outbreaks per se, and even in snakes, it's always like one case here, one case there. It's very, very sporadic. But it's a fungus that primarily uses arthropods as as their host. That's interesting, especially because that those are sort of employed in a lot of cases for captive enclosures that could potentially be an issue if you're bringing well, all the isopods yeah all the isopods that are being used to <laughs> to make a, money for people and also for cleaning up tanks um but that's uh that's open as to what those uh organisms are are carrying right all right well yeah it, one thing too i think throughout the discussion that's come up that's exciting for uh, people coming up in, in, in sort of this field is just the, the whole technological innovations that have occurred in this area. And it seems like there's so many, a lot of things, it seems like we're kind of at the cusp of understanding and it's exciting uh, for, for future research. Well, one thing I want to make sure, is point, drive this point home is, is one thing is to submit a sample for a certain test. It's something else entirely different about what to do with the positive and what to do with the negative and how to use that test for the betterment of the overall population of the animals that you're working on. And a lot of laboratories, especially when we deal with reptiles, and, and other phylogenetically lower vertebrates is, okay, you got a positive, what does that mean? And many of the diagnostic labs that are set up to do the diagnostic test do not have the experience in the field of how best to use or interpret that test. And that's the dilemma is when, whether it's a zoo vet or exotic animal vet or biologist or whatever, you're gonna submit a sample for a test. You should work out what you're going to do if that test is positive or negative before you submit the sample. 
I said, we've run into a number of people that have misused tests. And un unfortunately, and have euthanized animals that didn't necessarily need to be euthanized. Right. So it's, it's good for, for management groups or whoever's going to be using that to come up with a game plan prior to. Exactly. And, and, yeah. and the, and the zoo field and AZA and, uh, I mean, there's, uh, 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 infectious disease committees that have been set up the zoo vets also, I mean, there are infectious disease committees set up to deal with very specific infectious diseases. And that's why like these round tables, the one that came out on Tink, uh, recently, that really provides a lot of good information. Uh, and those are reviewed. Those roundtable, those uh, are reviewed before they're published. Uh, they provide some really good information that otherwise uh, would not get out there. Right. That's a really positive thing. I, 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 I mean, one thing I want to say when we, in terms of my presentation, as in many you know, talks like this, it's easy to make mistakes uh, when you have lots of different names floating through your mind. And I hear it on the news all the time where someone is making a comment of country A, but it's really on country B. Right. <laughs> and because once a reporter gets going, um, and especially when you're doing a live uh, you know, uh, interview like this without then editing it, um, I will say that, you know, in a interview like this, if there's any questions about what has been said, direct them to me. And if they need to be corrected, they'll be corrected. Definitely. Yeah. And a hundred percent. I mean, it, yeah, we've had a really uh, fruitful discussion, a lot of very interesting things. And obviously talking for a long period of time, stuff is going to get omitted or maybe confused and that sort of thing so that's certainly oh, all right, pull numbers out of the air if yeah. i say 500 milliosmoles versus well 300 is correct as and, and that range is normal but you know it may have been 450 or 400 but that data doesn't matter because that's been public. i'm the only one that has it anyway <laughs> right well yeah that's a, a <laughs> upside to that <laughs> yeah that's yeah. Uh, okay. Well, um, we we could start to wrap things up. I I have a few like maybe rapid fire questions. Uh, sure. Go ahead. Yeah, if that works. So one thing that's that's. Oh, uh, let me promote our book while we're. Yeah, I for know, sure. Have you seen the second edition? Uh, I I actually have put in a request for it. it it's a UGA library, but it's the one campus that's four hours away. So I I have to wait about oh, a month. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it's an expensive two volume set. It's uh, somewhere around. It's from CRC Press, and it's probably three eight three eighty for the two volume set. Um, there are a lot. I mean, the 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 figures have been really uh, white balanced and color matched. I think they're as good as any you'll find anywhere. Uh, and and the chapter, the first chapter is on biology, and and there are certain figures there that have been published and anywhere else. And so, um, anyhow, I, uh, it's, it's current up to 2020. It was published in September 21. Uh, so, and, and most of the chapters were very current. I was able to edit them down to the very end. Uh, but the last two years are not there. 
And there's quite a bit of information that has come out just in the last two years. That's okay. That's good to know. And then what, what, what's the name we can, uh, if you just want to say that we can also put this in the description of the video. So people interested no, can find it. Infectious diseases and pathology of reptiles, color atlas and text. Awesome. And it's co-authored myself and Dr. Michael Garner. Awesome. Yeah, we will have that for anyone interested listening uh, in the description of the podcast or YouTube, depending on how you're watching. Uh, so cool. Okay. All right. Let, we'll, we'll go through some quick. So one of the things that has uh, always been kind of interesting to me is uh, the potential for volvuli or volvuluses to form in, in Taurus's turtles when you rotate them. And I'm curious what you think about the odds of that happening. Uh, I, I think they're low. Um, certainly can happen, um, but I've taken, I, I have a, I, mean, I, I don't have my, I have leopard tortoises, uh, and then Sri Lankan stars, and uh, small animals, and, uh, but I, I've rotated them, uh, for, you know, various purposes, and, uh, and I always do it, uh, very slowly, uh, in case, uh, uh, there's an, there's an issue. And if I, I, but I've had, you know, my leopard tortoises, uh, one of the problems I have to deal with are males knocking over females and, uh, they, you know, they, they push them. They, they, I don't know what, I mean, why their behavior changes. I mean, so, I mean, they go from trying to mate them, breed them until pushing them laterally on their, on their, uh, lateral, uh, side. Uh, where they're able to push them enough to turn them over. And I've had uh, a number of my tortoises that have been turned over. I try to check them when, at the height of this. I know pretty much when there's full sun in my pens and when the time is, you know, they, they could die of overheating uh, easily if they were turned over right in the sun. And so those are things I have to you know, look out uh, for when I check them each day because they're fed just about every day. Once in a while, I may skip a day, uh, but they'll push them over. And I've had some of my tortoise on their carapace spinning around because they have my, my leopards have somewhat a high dome shell. And so when they get flipped over in their carapace, if it was a flatter shell, you know, that was made them closer to the ground. They could get their limbs easier on the ground to try and flip over, but when they have a high dome shell, they they're just spinning around in a circle. And I've had some that have made a groove, you know, in in the soil, spinning around. I've never had one of mine that uh, has had a uh, a volvulus, and in the literature, volvulus and and um, is uh, we've had only. I think we had two sea turtles uh, with a uh, with a volvulus, or maybe we had, and it was associated with plastic and uh, ingest and ingestion. Uh, but I've never had uh, one of my tortoises do that. Now I had a tortoise that ruptured its uterus that died from uh, uh, yolk. Um, probably had yolk emboli and, and, um, and, and I, but I don't, 
camera calls that flipped over it flipped over and I righted it and then several days later it died I just I can't recall that that would be the only other issue maybe of an animal that's ready to lay eggs flipped over and trying to exert itself uh, just uh, ruptures uh, has yolk peritonitis uh, but I've only had one turtle uh, toy, one of my lepidotuses that uh, did that. But I've had a number of them that flipped over and spun around for a while, and so. But I haven't, uh, I haven't seen a, vo uh, a volvulus or uh, there are other, uh, you know, changes in the in the GI tract. There are torsions and and intersusceptions. I've seen more. I've seen several intersusceptions and sea turtles uh, tied to uh, monofilament of uh, ingesting monofilament. I once had a sea turtle that had part of the monofilament out of its mouth and out of its uh, uh, cloaca. It, it extended the whole length wow. of the GI tract. Um, and then uh, I've had several with, uh, uh, with intersusceptions where they get what is called accordion, where the gut gets, like an accordion gets folded, just stacked up and uh dying of that uh but those are generally from foreign bodies i always wonder because uh myself and and wyatt and uh some of the other uh, uh hosts on the show all participate in a lot of uh mark recapture research in florida and beyond for where we're we're, we're I mean, on a day-to-day -day basis, going through hundreds of turtles and moving them around to pit right. tag them. And, and I always wonder about just the sheer magnitude, how many that were potentially causing issues for like that. But it's good to hear that it seems to be a rare thing. Yeah, I, I, from my experience, it is. But you'd have to talk to, uh, like, for instance, I've never asked that with uh, Christine Berry. Uh, she would be, uh, she, she has really good, observational skills, especially when it comes to health-related uh, issues. And uh, she's, oh, I mean, she has, uh, they have uh, their own pet dogs they've had over over the years, and she's very, very uh, fastidious with her pets. And that's probably the same, uh, you know, the way she's looked at illness health problems in, in her tortoises that, uh, a lot of biologists, uh, at least in, in previous generations, uh, didn't consider that as an issue. Um, the younger group now, uh, disease is on the forefront of conservation. If you look at there, there are, I just saw a paper that's coming out, I think out of Brazil, that has to, to do with, uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, conservation. Of, uh, of certain end of endangered uh, uh, reptiles, and um, and and they're uh, really disease is on everyone's list as as an issue. And you had I mentioned get back to the hemogregorines. That is a group I've seen both. I mean I've seen a lot in and especially in in eastern uh, colubrid snake and water snakes and and uh garter snakes and so on and i've i've never seen an animal that i consider where i consider that as the cause of death and i think it's very common and then you 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 can somewhat separate out captive wild versus captive animals 
uh, because I've never seen any of those, and, and they generally need to go through another host uh, in the wild. So you just don't see them in captive animals at all. That's that's yeah, very interesting to hear that. Uh, the, the other another uh, question related to that one too is for pit tags. Uh, in terms of injuries that can be sustained, have you seen anything that's uh, abnormal after a pit tag insertion? Not that I, but I don't know. Again, I, I just don't do a lot. We, we pit tag animals that, kind of, that would come to the clinic or for some zoos, but not, not in the field in, uh, in numbers. Uh, we have seen, I did a, um, a questionnaire a number of years ago, people working primarily with snakes, uh, and, and had to do both with radio transmitters and, and, uh, with, uh, with pit tags. Um, and, and one thing I, you know, m- you know, radio transmitters for the most part in colonians are on their shell or, you know, are, are uh, sealed to their, uh, to their shell. Um, in, in snakes, they're put inside, they're, you know, put internally. And, and one thing I think that was, uh, especially with transmitters, is the width of the transmitter. I think that, and that, that to me hasn't been worked out. What is uh, the way, I think, so I've seen some transmitters in animals that are just are far too big and are affecting uh, the, uh, the intestinal tract and any amount of digester that can be in the tract where, where the transmitter is. And so I tend to avoid, I mean, I avoid putting in real, if it's more than half the width of the animal, I just use that as a crude, you know, guesstimate. But you have to be considering the width of those, those transmitters. Tags, there are a number of papers, there's quite a few papers showing migration of, uh, of pit tags. So they're capable of migrating. Um, I, I think that the biggest thing is the loss uh of the uh uh the tag uh can you know maybe lost or 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 the, the site i mean uh, may not have good site fidelity and all else but i don't know of any real problems with um with tags and turtles there probably is someone that it maybe has had a really bad migration uh but i think uh the people work it, try to standardize that as, as, as well as, as in terms of, say, site. What is the preferred site uh, for use? Uh, I'm, I'm just saying rhetorically, you'd have to see how much, how much variance is there uh, from study site to study site, or are most studies now pretty uniform uh, on where they're putting pit tags. Um, but migration to me is the, is, is the, uh, is, is the big issue. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, it, so something else too, that that's interesting to me personally is the cancer prevalence in turtles. I'm curious, uh, do you see it less frequently than you would expect? Uh, what's your, in your experiments experience dealing with, with cancers and in, intestines? Well, it's it's much more except for if you take out fibropapilloma uh, out of sea turtles, uh, it's, it's very sporadic cases here and there. Um, and so, uh, if you look at crocodilians, very few to no cases. Um, and so, as a, in reptiles as a group, uh, most of the cases are seen in lizards and snakes. But of course, they're ninety percent. 
of the population of, of, of reptiles. Yeah, uh, really. but still, uh, uh, crocodilians appear to have the, the fewest uh, cases. Uh, and you're dealing with 25 species, 23 species, 25 species. They're very conservative, uh, have not changed a lot over time. And they do uh, just infrequently have, have tumors. Uh, I would say in turtles, tortoises, maybe reproductive tumors. Uh, and several, and I think in the literature, uh, papillomas have been seen in a, in a number of different, uh, I've seen reports in snapping turtles and other turtles, but where no virus has been found or there's no evidence, uh, for a virus, but, uh, have a skin tumor. Um, trying to think of what other, else, what other body system. Uh, yeah, you get this anyway. Again, you, you, you remove fibropapillomas and papillomas, remove those, uh, from, uh, colonians, and then you have a scattering, I think, of, uh, of cases. Um, uh, there's a, uh, we have a, and now we're two volume set. There's, there's a chapter on neoplasia, and it, uh, does, I think, a fairly good job. Uh, you can take a look at, uh, it's probably a table in that chapter that lists all the, you know, the different colonians and, and uh, the cases of, of neoplasia in them. Uh, but in terms of just cancer, metastatic, not that common. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting thinking about the sort of molecular mechanisms that control that. It seems like the whole pedo's paradox situation and larger bodied animals, they, they still don't get it at a frequency you would expect. So there's got to be something underpinning that. Well, they're a very conservative group of animals that's been successful. They've been around 160 million or whatever number of years. And of course, we don't know what they were like physiologically in, in, in these past years. But they're, the, and the crocodilians too are, are very conservative. They have not changed a lot. So they have a certain stability to their genetic architecture. You get into lizards and snakes, you see incredible diversity of body form and, and uh, size and so on. Uh, it's just pretty remarkable. And so you're dealing with a, a much, you know, higher evolving, you know, the animals that are evolving, I think, quicker over time and greater diversity and greater numbers of species. And you tend to then see more tumors being de described. But uh, you would have to look at, you know, the, you know, the composition of collections and, and what is the percentage roughly of people that have turtles and tortoises. A lot of people have turtles and tortoises do not necessarily like snakes or other reptiles that much. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very focused on that group of animals. Right. Yeah, it is sort of a, its own sort of world. I, I feel like a lot of reptile captive keeping is kind of separated into different sort of groups. But yeah, it's it maybe in your experience, more turtles are kind of more of its it, own thing. There's probably more in, the, in tumors and um, that incident, you know, individual reports here and there. For instance, uh, the London Zoo has uh, historically maintained very detailed records 
on their collection, animals that are being necropsied every year and, and, and what these animals have had. And so that's really a really good site of information. Uh, that chapter on neoplasia probably has some of that literature uh, in it. Uh, getting uh, a real grasp on the European literature, uh, especially like in, in the German literature, uh, is um, takes having friends over there to uh, to do searches and, and, and get copies of certain papers, which are, are hard to get. But there may be more out there on with turtles and tumors. Uh, certainly crocodilians have the least uh, number of, uh, of, that I know of, of all the reptiles. And again, they have this, you know, the smallest group of having, you know, 20, say five species, very, very conservative group. Um, but there's certainly, there's a mycoplasma identified in alligators that will kill quite a few animals at one of the places that we, we, uh, work at. Uh, West Nile virus uh, issue in Nali. So there are pathogens that get into them, but tumors, non crocodilians. Yeah, really, yeah, interesting. And it's something else, too, uh, in terms of like shell repair with, uh, with turtles, what, what, what's your preferred method for that? And are there any particular piece of advice that may seem counterintuitive, but that people should know in? in the event that they, they get a uh, turtle with a, a shell fracture. The big thing is not sealing the, the, uh, the wound completely over uh, with any kind of replacement material, epoxy or whatever. Uh, those lesions really need to granulate, what do we call granulation? They need to granulate in. Uh, we often use uh, wet-dry bandages, um, and we've used, uh, there's a paper by one of our residents, Maud LaFortune, uh, who published a paper on uh, vacuum-assisted uh, healing of the shell of turtles uh, that we've used quite a, quite a bit, uh, where uh, you put bandaging on it and use a vacuum system to, uh, to draw out fluids uh, from that. And then the animals have to get re re replacement fluids. I mean, that shell... Uh, is, uh, you know, depending on how big the damage, how large the damage is, uh, there's a lot of fluid that can be lost uh, through a very big wound. Uh, so that's why we use these, I mean, wet-dry bandages. Okay, yeah, and then uh, sort of one last thing, and then we can kind of go into just our closing uh, piece. But uh, I, something, my, my grandpa's a, a human physician, and he... He does yeah. a lot of work with uh, different like hyperbaric treatments and laser therapies. Uh, I'm I'm curious what the extent of knowledge uh, for reptiles and exotics. Uh, what kind of research has been done in that area, and how effective are those? Things? Well, a lot of it. I mean, clinical work that is done with uh, uh, mostly with with laser uh, hyperbaric. Uh, I know some people have used that with certain types of wounds. Uh, but I, I, I can't give you uh, any kind of uh, idea of numbers, how many cases out there that people have used hyperbaric chambers. Uh, but I know of, of people that, that have uh, used them um, uh, for, especially with some, some cutaneous, really bad cutaneous lesions. Uh, laser therapy has been used in terms of uh, surgical lasers uh, for removal of tumors. 
very popular with uh, green turtles with fiber, and the other sea turtles, they have fibropapillomas. They're primarily uh, the people that are doing large numbers of these turtles, like the Turtle Hospital and Marathon, and uh, they, they've been using uh, laser uh, 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 surgery for a long time. Uh, they have a, a previous veterinarian uh, of theirs, uh, Dr. Doug Mater, I think, introduced them uh, to uh, using uh, lasers. And he's given workshops, I think, at the ARAV at their annual meeting. I think they've had labs on on use of uh, lasers for removing uh, tumors, cutaneous tumors. And um, and I think uh, there are other facilities. There are uh, maybe a dozen, maybe 20 different rehab facilities in Florida, uh, somewhere in that, in that in maybe 10 to 20 uh, C-Turtle facilities. And I think uh, laser uh, surgery has become a little bit more, I mean, more common. Uh, and uh, and you'll see it's also a reflection of what people are using in private practice. Yeah, that that's interesting. I, I've seen it. I've, I've been to the Jekyll Island Center, and I, I've seen them doing that sort of thing. And uh, some other turtle hospitals, like the, the Karen Beasley Center and such. Yeah. Yeah. At, uh, Dr. Terry Norton, who, who's at Jekyll Island, he was one of our residents. And actually, it was with me on the very first fibropapilloma case we worked on in 1987, which was at the Turtle Hospital, before it became a Turtle Hospital. It uh, was a motel called Hidden Harbor Motel uh, that eventually got uh, turned into uh, the Turtle. The, then uh, a building next to the motel was bought out and turned into their clinic. And then the owner started building and put in lots of big tanks for the turtles. And then one of the hurricanes wiped out the motel and they decided not to reopen as a motel, but just to keep the rooms as guest rooms for people coming there working with turtles. And, um, and so the owner of, uh, of the turtle hospital put a lot of, uh, of, uh, private money, uh, into, uh, uh, rehab on these uh, these animals. All the turtles that come in with tumors get MRI'd uh, when they come in to check for uh, uh, internal sites of uh, of tumor uh, uh, presence of tumors internally, and that is one of the criteria used for euthanasia if they have internal tumors. Uh, because we, I don't think anyone has seen a reversal of that. Whereas some turtles with the skin tumors will get over them. Um, but uh, once they go internal, we don't have any evidence of those ever resolving. Right. That's a tough situation. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I recently had to euthanize a box turtle that had been hit on the road. It's, the skull was completely fractured. The eyes were popped out, but it still had some level of sensitivity. I, but that having to do that consistently, is a, that's... that's uh, a challenging yeah. thing. I well, what, what, what we do with small reptiles and amphibians, and there's a paper published on this, uh, that uh, you know, we, we cool them down in a refrigerator mm -hmm. uh, when we don't have access to uh, other types of uh, you know, euthanasia drugs. Uh, but if they're small, they can be cooled down and then put in the freezer. 
And uh, I think there's good evidence that they're not at that point when it, once they're cooled down to a certain point, at least looking at uh, conduction of axons, uh, that there is essentially no conduction just uh, above freezing uh, in their brain um, and then they can be frozen. Uh, but there's a paper um, in, a, in a biological science journal. Uh, I've got co-authored that with uh, s- uh, several friends. Uh, and uh, so uh, when you have nothing else and an animal is in that kind of state, uh, th- then uh, we will uh, freeze it. Right. But it, ha- but it, ne- it needs to be fairly small. Yeah, right. The pain tolerance is something else. I think like the the moral dilemma behind it is, it, does their pain tolerance, the HPA axis and that sort of thing, it functions differently in reptiles. So it, it's like if it is suffering it, to an extent where a human would be in a case, it, it may just be better to euthanize the human. It, for a reptile, is it better to leave it alive if it's not feeling the pain? I what do you think about that? I mean, do you think they conduct pain similar to, to us or? No, they, I mean, there's evidence of pain in them. That's, uh, everything comes down to what is the best thing to do for the animal, you know, in the situation that's, that, that you have. You have an animal that has fractured shell and his eyes are uh, practiced and, and uh, basically uh, the heart is beating. And their hearts, I mean, Turtles have a heart that's very myogenic. Uh, they uh, often will beat for long periods of time where the animal is really clinically dead. Um, and um, and that's why their heart has been used so much in, uh, in physiology uh, laboratories, uh, looking at the effects of various drugs on, on stroke volume and heart rate and so on. Uh, turtle hearts have been used uh, classically in past years now, not so much. Uh, but they have a very myogenic uh, heart. That was as much more neurogenic. And so the heart will continue beating for a long time that the animal is otherwise really clinically uh, dead. Uh, pain, yeah, they feel pain, but we don't know what analgesics. Uh, there's nothing that probably works uniformly across all groups of animals. And in actuality, only a handful have been really studied. Uh, yet, uh, you know, there's a real concern about pain and, and, and what they're feeling. And so, you know, we, t- we balance things out. We look at this. We try to do the best we can to keep pain as minimal as we can. But, for instance, here I am at home dealing with we have invasive Cuban tree frogs on our property. And then Anola segrii, they're all over the place, they Bahamian, Cuban brown anole. And so with Cuban tree frogs, we, I cool them down and I freeze them. And uh, I, I, it's hard to keep up with their, then they're beating on our native frogs. Uh, and uh, so they're, they're problematic, but I don't disregard totally their life. I try to do it as you know, best I can. Um, and I keep some MS-22 around, and that has there's a paper published on the use of that as for uh, as uh, as uh, for euthanasia, and that uh, you don't necessarily I don't think you need to have a veterinary license to. Uh, I think it's available being sold with uh, without a script, 
Um, and, uh, but MS-222 uh, works fairly, you know, fairly well for, for euthanasia. Um, but then it's having it available. You know, what do you have available? Have friends that, you know, getting, uh, having barbiturates is not easy to have, even as a research. Uh, I had, uh, I'm not licensed as a veterinarian in the state of Florida. I was always operating through the University of Florida had a license for the for the clinicians there that were didn't have a state license uh but then i retired and i i'm not licensed and and uh to get certain i mean to do certain things i i have to go through friends uh to help me uh or through the zoo med service that i bring animals to uh for treatment uh so that is problematic getting certain drugs I tend to avoid barbiturates uh, because whatever tissue they come in contact with generally makes uh, the tissue not good for histopathology. Uh, it causes a lot of local damage wherever you inject that drug. So you need to know the pluses and minuses of the drugs that you're using and why and what are you trying to do a study on the animal after it's dead you need the tissues for histopathology or for physiology or so that will influence what you're using um so there there are a bunch of things that uh that go into selection um and certainly as a veterinarian i know i mean i have my preferences and i know how to um you know a couple of miles from the vet school if i need to if i find an animal on the road that needs to be euthanized i'll bring it over to school and uh and submitted for that yeah that's that makes sense that's uh the, the morality behind it is only part of the thing that factors into it obviously that's something you want to make sure it's there but then yeah do you do you need it the tissue for later and and there's other considerations that, that, and, that and, and any of these tissues that we if we have a wildlife species that that gets necropsy and then frozen you cannot now to, 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 even now in clinics, we need what are called IUCUCs. They're institutional animal care uh, uh, committees uh, that evaluate uh, all the proposals that uh, are submitted. All research pro proposals that deal with either tissues or the live animal itself have to be approved by this committee and given what's called an IUCUC number. Um, and that's uh, essential. And and now these committees, you know, the people on these committees often don't have experience with reptiles necessarily that are reviewing these proposals. So then they ask for outside people who who have uh, uh, you know, special training. And I've I've looked at um, quite a few of these IACUCs make comment on how the reptiles are being kept or handled or how they euthanize. And, and so University of Florida has a very detailed, uh, uh, I mean, a committee that really looks at proposals and, and details, but sometimes they go overboard, uh, where, where they're requesting things, uh, that we just don't know what the answer is. And, um, and so there's an old saying, the more, you know, the more you wish you didn't know, yeah, it was that's... much easier years ago. <laughs> To, to get a proposal, you know, approved than it is today, 
if it's dealing with live animals or their tissues. It's just the way it is. Right. And yeah. certain people hate these ayacucks and other people love them. Yeah, I, I took a class with someone that, uh, in the fall semester, uh, who does a lot of work with insects and they, and I guess that's not really a problem, but the times he's had to work on any sort of, uh, vertebrates or, or, uh, I guess mammals, reptiles, fish, that sort of thing. It, it becomes, he, he said that there's some very interesting discussions that happen. And a lot of times it leads and it ends up being kind of frustrating down the line. Well, the octopus, the cephalopods are a particular problem. Okay. Yeah, uh, and that and they're still yet to be worked out what is satisfactory uh, for them. There is a cephalopod. There's a discussion group on Facebook, uh, and that, that that whole question of what they feel and and um, they're, they're very intelligent animals in in a lot of different ways. Uh, and so I have friends that are very sensitive to you know with cephalopods. Right. All right. Well, so we can just kind of wrap things up. Uh, we've this has been great, but I'm I'm curious just as sort of closing uh, questions in terms of your career. Uh, what the most interesting uh, case you've seen with a turtle or tortoise was, uh, and maybe what the hardest operation you had to perform on a turtle or tortoise or in general was. Oh, I, I'm not a surgeon, so I do some very basic surgery, like put in transmitters and uh, certain. I know the anatomy of these animals very well, and and that's really essential uh, because I started out as a biologist first, and and then uh, wound up going to uh, uh, dual enrollment and in vet school and and, and graduate and uh, in graduate school. And then over the years, I, uh, uh, I know where my limitations are uh, surgically, and I've had uh, uh, friends that have been now service uh, colleagues that are uh, boarded in zoo medicine and also boarded in surgery. And so we've had some very gifted uh, uh, people uh, here. And if it's anything very complicated, uh, we tend to go uh, to our surgeons. Uh, who have always uniformly done a really neat job. Um, and one example is uh, I did a fair amount to work with ostriches <laughs> and, and farm bodies cool. are real common. And also okay. common, commonly see them in, re in certain reptiles of, of uh, swallowing farm bodies and have to removing, uh, remove farm bodies. But we had one, this ostrich that had swallowed. It's, it's, it's uh, radiograph. It's uh, proventriculus was just packed with screws and nails and every metal object you can think of. And we wound up with a friend who is a surgeon, uh, and I assisted on it of doing this proventriculotomy, open up the proventriculus, pulling out all of these uh, uh, metal objects and lining them up uh, on, a, on a sheet of paper. <laughs> you know, ostriches will eat anything. And if you have ostriches, and to a certain degree, tortoises, uh, we've had some interesting farm bodies, is uh, having a metal detector and, and making making sure wherever you're keeping these animals is pretty, you know, clean of, of metal objects that they potentially could ingest. That, uh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, and uh, 
routine, the kinds of routine surgeries uh, generally, uh, you know, hit by car injuries uh, of, of some some that are really uh, not repairable, and some pretty amazed at, at how animals uh, repair. Uh, you know, shock bites on sea turtles, having a whole limb and a portion of the shell taken out, and yet the animal has healed. Uh, and it's pretty uh, amazing the kinds of healing uh, that these animals are capable of doing. But there are certain things that they're just not going to heal from. For instance, transected back injuries in tortoises. If we have a hit by car tortoise um, or even um, box turtles, they have big bladders sizable bladders, if they have a transected uh, area in their, in their lumbar, in their hind part of their spinal cord, they, they lose then control of their bladder and their hind limbs, and they wind up uh, rupturing their bladder. So if we have an animal with uh, a tortoise that comes in with a transection of the lumbar, in the lumbar area, the, what would be called the lumbar area, uh, we generally euthanize them. Um, and, that's, and sea turtles, though, have a much smaller bladder, and they can stand uh, transected cords, they can live their whole life out with a transected cord, uh, lower cord. So, uh, again, you have to know your species and what it's capable of doing and not doing. Um, but they are capable of some incredible repair. But I know of someone who claims to have seen uh, a tortoise, I think it may be by a lawnmower, a transected cord that healed. And I just don't believe that's possible. <laughs> but yeah, they will have to prove it. Misdiagnosis or something, something similar. Yeah. But yeah. Well, that that's uh, I, the the whole the, the the metal objects and just foreign foreign bodies in enclosures is I, I've seen that plenty of times in in people's captive collections. Some things where it's like this could really be an issue. So it's yeah. it's good to hear uh, that. Yeah, an interesting case was we received the Galapagos tortoise in the 90s from Isabella. It came from the Galapagos. Uh, someone had, uh, there was a big fire and this one tortoise got a rope put around the hind leg and, and, uh, and the limb became necrotic. And we got special permits uh, from Fish and Wildlife Service and from Ecuador of, of sending the tortoise here uh, and, uh, for treatment. Which we had to we had to remove uh, the the limb, and and we rigged up uh, we epoxied uh, a structure to underneath uh, the shell, right by the you know the plastron, the very caudal plastron, just to elevate the animal off the ground so it wasn't just dragging its plastron while it walked, and that helped uh, quite a bit. And we had that tortoise for several months. And we wound up taking it back to Galapagos wow. uh, and, and return it to Isabella, which was uh, a big affair to do that. And we had people taking photographs of, of the animal. And we were met at the, you know, flying into Ecuador by the U.S. ambassador to Ecuador, who his daughter was interested in vet school. And he and her wound up going with us back to Galapagos. And then the, this boat ride, Isabella, was a nightmare. It was 11 hours on this, you know, motorized sailboat, which the motor broke down. And, and we're just coasting. I mean, I, I, I got so sick from 11 hours on this up and down boat. 
and we're, and we're sleeping in a bunk that was right next to the diesel engine. And it was one of the worst experiences oh, I ever had. And what was worse was going back to Santa Cruz because once I knew what it was like, <laughs> it was a nightmare. It took me a whole day just to stabilize from the vertigo. It's hard to describe unless you experienced it. That that's uh yeah I guess you can't you can't really anticipate how long it's going to take so it did so you were going from Santa Cruz to Isabella and it took eleven and a half hours that that's, eleven hours yeah and that's just because it normally it wouldn't take nearly that long I mean I'm no but it was it, still a motorized boat that's not going really fast but it was the only boat that they could get that that um um. Oh, uh, it's, uh, the, 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 it was Charles Darwin Center had set uh, had set up this this made all the arrangements, and so we went with the head biologist there uh, at the time, and then she's telling us all these horror stories of boats breaking down at sea and and things going wrong and and disasters, which were really neat to listen to at night when you're really seasick. Yeah, in the boat, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and but uh, yeah, it would have maybe it would have been seven hours instead of eleven or something. But it was still it was it was it was more than I needed. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's uh, any other uh, like field adventure? Just crazy experiences in the field, or that is that the craziest? Uh, well, thing? there's one I'm writing up. I have to. It has to do with collecting uh, these uh, 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 land iguanas in uh, in the Bahamas, uh, Cyclora rileyi rileyi, and and uh, which is all, it's just located now on a few caves off of the coast of San um, San Salvador, one of the islands in the Bahamas. But uh, that's a story I'm writing. A, a friend is doing a, a book on things that go wrong in the field or interesting, funny stories in the field. And so he's putting a collection of different stories together. So I'm doing one on this going to collect these iguanas, which almost turned into a, another disaster trip. Uh, yeah. Probably the ones that you remember the most, the ones that almost kill you. When that, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I hope I see that when it comes out because that's, uh, I, I always like that kind of stuff. It's just part of the adventure. That, that'll be a fun yeah, read. Yeah, you know, it's being done by <laughs> Harvey Lillywhite, who's a uh, top knot, and he's retired also now, but uh, a reptile physiologist who's done a lot on uh, cardiovascular system of snakes, uh, primarily works with, with, uh, with, with squamates. But has done a lot of uh, field work, especially sea snakes. He's spent quite a bit of time off of Costa Rica and, and Australia um, with some pretty big grants to study, uh, basically how how sea snakes operate in the field. That's awesome. Yeah, that sounds like a fun thing. So, I, I, just our our sort of concluding uh, question we have is just uh, in terms of pieces of advice for those looking to make turtle, tortoise, reptile, exotic medicine, sort of a career. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would have or, or more, uh, that you think someone sort of upcoming should hear? 
Well, they're more interested, there are people interested in, the, in, in this field uh, than ever before uh, because of professional organizations such as the Association of Reptile Amphibian Veterinarians. And so at least today we, we have a, a fairly good idea of uh, the expertise around the country, and there's a lot of expertise. And you can see it by the, uh, you can go to proceedings of ARAV and they have proceedings online for members of uh, the organization. Very good. I, I encourage anyone uh, who's really interested in, in these animals to become a member. Uh, I, I don't, I can't remember what the, uh, uh, the annual uh, membership is for students generally get a, uh, a cut in the, uh, in the price uh, compared to uh, you know, graduate veterinarians. Um, so that's, a, I mean, really good to, to see and to see who the major, you know, people are in the field. Uh, not necessarily all the people who write are necessarily the top, a lot of clinicians don't like writing. Uh, uh, but you get a really good idea of who's out there and what they're doing. And if you're an undergraduate, you want to go and do externships. You want to go and, and get as much experience as you can, whether it's in the field, working under someone who is in the field, working with populations of these animals, or someone who has a really good practice. Uh, and there are several veterinarians that have high-end practices that are primarily on exotics, not necessarily all reptiles, uh, but including uh, other exotics uh, too. The, it's, it's, it's really hard to make a living. Uh, there are some doing it, but it's not easy making a living just doing reptile, amphibian, veterinary medicine. Uh, there are a few practices that, that do, but they tend to be, you know, near big cities, big metropolitan areas, um, or universities. There are more positions in universities today than before, but still not as many as you would hope for those that are interested in going into this field. Many of the people in the field are doing it part-time, are in a practice, that sees exotics, but is also doing a lot of domestic animal work. Right. Okay. So that experience is, is really critical yeah. and to compete for and there are internships and residencies in zoo medicine or exotic animal medicine, avian medicine, reptile medicine. Uh, th there are. And, and so you, you want to go to a clinic, and get experience where there's a good volume of animals being, uh, being seen. Uh, but, uh, there's more information today, more clinics, uh, that are doing some level of exotics now today than, than, uh, ever before. Uh, field work is different than working with animals in a clinical setting. And so field work often entails epidemiological studies and quite a bit different than working on clinical cases. So that's something to sort out. Do you want to work on conservation issues 
and that relate to animals in the field, or are you more interested in the, the pet industry and the pet trade? Very different. Right. Those are two different areas. I, I think that that's, uh, that's uh, good, good advice in terms of getting experience and just uh, in terms of getting you to the next levels, uh, participate in, in, in developing even uh, sort of mentor uh, student relationships with, with other people in the field already is a great thing. So Many of our residents, past residents, I can't speak of the, the last group of them, but um, had three to five years of post veterinary school experience before they were selected in the residency. That's, uh, yeah, that's, wow, that's interesting. That's, uh, yeah. yeah, it takes a lot of experience. Okay, because well. we want, you know, for us, and as, as far as a resident is concerned, interns are a little bit different because they're generally fresh out of school. But for a residency, you want a person, we want to select the person that comes in that knows how to work, how to, how to work with clients, and, and, and has had, you know, certain very basic skills have to be decent surgeons, decent in internal medicine, have gone through internships in those fields and or anesthesia. We've had several residents that have done uh, residencies in anesthesia before applying to our program. So having, you know, the real basic skills of veterinary medicine, which you then can apply to reptiles or amphibians are real important. Right. That, that makes sense. It's, it's good to know. And, uh, it's also says something for, like you said, the good working skills and sort of communication skills. That's something that's important in, in the veterinary field. So it's critical. Whatever fields you go into, unless you're working, you could be a pathologist working alone or a radiologist now, uh, who is, uh, you know, reading out uh, MRIs uh, for private practice um, and uh, work out of home and be your own person. But when you're working with a group of people, those communication skills are essential. Uh, you, you, and, and some people have them and other people don't. Right. All right. Well, I think that's... Uh... Sort of, unless you have anything else that you want to say, uh, we can sort of wrap things up. No, if, if once you go through and listen to the podcast and you have any questions or there seems to be uh, uh, any conflict of what I said or, or said once or maybe said repeated again, but a little bit gave a little different answer, maybe. Uh, so if you have any questions, contact me and I'll, I'll sort them out. I just want to make sure we get the best information out there and, uh, and as few mistakes as possible. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, it'll be a while before it's available publicly and I will definitely keep in touch about that. Um, at, okay. the, at the end of all of them too, we, <laughs> we like to, I forgot to mention this to you, but we like to do a little, uh, like tur turtle or reptile related trivia, uh, for obscure facts, uh, but we can do this. We don't need to do it. We can do, you can just ask us questions or we can ask you some questions, uh, however you want to do that. Um, uh, and if you've got to go, then I understand that too, but it's just kind of a fun way to bring in obscure facts that are hard to put anywhere else. <laughs> that, that are true. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that yeah. I mean, it, we try uh, for the best accuracy. We've had like fifty guests at this point, so I'm sure some of the stuff that's been used as trivia questions is a bit maybe outdated or inaccurate. But I don't know if you've got a few questions off the top of your head you want to ask us, or we can throw no, some your way. It was just an interesting saying, which I I just uh, it comes from Don Quixote, and uh, something I. I Yes, I read it long ago, but there's a statement in there that uh, that Don Quixote is asking uh, 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 Sancho, and he goes, "Sancho, you know what the the, the greatest enemy, uh, or the, the the greatest enemy of the truth are facts, and that the truth can vary." But the facts do not. There you go. The facts are facts, and so it's just an interesting comment that he uh, that he makes to. Uh, and this is written in the 1500s. That facts are the greatest enemy of the truth. Yeah, yeah. From a sort of empirical uh, scientific perspective, that's a yeah. real thing. But but yeah. For people that understand that quote, it it makes a lot of sense, and I, I I also feel like there's a lot of situations where it, the the quote may not, it 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 doesn't fully uh, hit home for for certain areas. That that definitely with with uh, some of the COVID and certain things was highlighted, uh, but that's that's something else. But yeah, I I, I definitely uh, I think we appreciate that that quote for sure, and it's a lot to kind of think about. But yeah, the wisdom behind it. In a few of my my Spanish classes, we would go through and analyze that text, and that it's incredible that that was written so long ago. Oh, it, it, it is. It's, it's very remarkable. I need to go back and, and uh, actually reread it uh, uh, at this stage of my life, where the first time I just had to read it for had to read it for class. <laughs> <laughs> right. But yeah. Different now. Right. But if you have any questions, I mean, if you want, uh, uh, we, we could set up another time or, or, or we can do a few things uh, right right now. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm I'm in terms of the uh, the podcast, I think uh, we're good to go uh, for okay. that. Yeah, because I see it's 2.15. I got to <laughs> actually, I have to get someone's picking up a group of snakes for me, so I have to get them ready. All right. Well, that sounds good. I, I'll keep in touch about this, and I'm okay. sure I'll, I'll reach out in the future for other other things. So, yeah, for sure. Glad, glad to help as I can. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. For all the listeners, this is oh, been... the other thing, which is most important, but having a library, a really good library, and um, and one thing I noted, which is really uh, interesting, with some of the interviews, uh, especially, uh, you know, I mean. From uh, cultural things to uh, uh, to COVID and uh, uh, on the uh, the news of people now broadcasting being interviewed. So I mean, routinely from home uh, on Zoom or or uh, whatever uh, is uh, is 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 being uh, used and um, and that. Um, uh, you often see behind people uh, that are being interviewed and as experts in a field, their library. And now some people have just incredible libraries. And uh, that libraries and books 
And, and in the old days, it was reprints. Now it's PDF. But in the old days, it was your reprint collection, which I, I still maintain. One of the few things I, I really kept is uh, my reprint collection. Um, and, uh, and those things have tremendous value. They have a certain value. It's, it's hard to uh, express unless you have them. I mean, even if it's a book uh, that you pick up once every 10 years, if you want that information, uh, the closer at, at hand it is, the better it is. And so to me, libraries will always be important. Uh, but the generation now is so into PDFs that uh, I think the younger people have almost no library other than PDFs. The, the digital library. Wyatt made a comment about yeah. your library earlier, actually. That's that's funny that you bring that up, <laughs> about just the fact that, yeah, you had stuff there. Well, it was so important in graduate school to have your library at hand rather than have to run to a library or get it on into library loan. And there is still today, one of the benefits of being retired is I have access to the UF uh, library system. And if our library doesn't have it, I'll tell you one library that's really almost inversely, our library goes to University of Illinois Library. Uh, it has a must have a, just an excellent library. But there are a lot of still papers that um, are not that easy to get access. And then I have friends over in Europe who I'll get certain papers there that are very difficult to get at. Plus, then I have to get a certain amount of translation done. So, uh, but as you build up a network of friends around the world, then you have a network of people who can help you find uh, certain literature that is not easy to get. Right. Yeah, that's important that the whole social skills aspect too. That's another yeah. thing. <laughs> and yeah, that something about having a physical copy of a book is 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 pleasing. Uh I still I still like that better than a PDF. Or I, I like it better not a PDF. If I print it out fine. But I don't like for instance now journals are going to reviewing papers online, not getting a hard copy or a book, getting a book for a review and they want to give you the, the digital copy of the book. And boy, I cannot review a book on a digital copy. It's, I, I re refuse to do that. I need a hard copy. Uh, hard copies are much better in certain ways. Right, right. Yeah, for saving purposes and marking up, it, yeah. can, it can be a challenge. Well, that, okay. Uh, I think okay. we're, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll let you get to... Uh, dealing with your, your snakes and uh, we'll, we'll keep in touch, but for everyone out there, this has been episode 38, uh, a really, really thorough and interesting discussion. Uh, thank you so much for coming on Dr. Jacobson. Oh, yeah, glad to, glad to. And uh, if you have questions, just send me a message. Definitely. All right. Thank you. Yep. All right. Take care. Yep. You too. Have a good day. All right. Bye. One sec.